0: Today on the Marshall Pro Podcast, in your Week in Sports Cars episode, who do we have on the other line? Well, the man who waits on the line all day, every day, just in case we might record. That's Graham Goodwin, editor of DailySportsCar.com, man of many talents and services. How are you this fine Saturday evening in the UK? How's your lovely wife? How is the even lovelier puppy dog? You saying
1: that truth is less less lovely than a husky. No, well, I'm saying
0: fine. that among huskies. <laughs> boy, you have um, got to find one. We're
1: all we're all fine, mate. And um, yes, it's uh, the end of another busy, busy, busy week. It's been busy today. We're recording this late evening on Saturday nights uh, here in the UK uh, after yet more news breaks and uh, yet uh, more significant racing over this weekend. You know, two weeks to Christmas, and still it comes. Uh, but no, we're all good. Um, weather here, very cold just now. Uh, not feeling very Christmassy just yet, but I'm sure that will come. And how are things stateside?
0: We've just had the better part of a full day of rain, which has become a rarity, unfortunately. But things are well locally. Uh, I have one cat, Rosie, asleep on the right. Well, she's now staring at me because I mentioned her name. Um my wife is is taking a well deserved nap. And yes, I think we have approximately ninety minutes to, to dedicate to the show, brought to us by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers Graham, and also Fine Fine Folks, Toronto Motorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and it's time to get rocking and rolling, my friend. You are the official chooser selector picker of categories.
1: We're going to break the mould this week, MP, because uh, you know as we've said a couple of times in recent weeks, we've not managed because we're not getting paddock access at the moment with the, the ongoing COVID situation to do much in the way of inside the sports car paddock. But I did catch up with someone I'm going to be spending a remarkable amount of time with um, in the early New Year. Uh Taitsho. C- Jesus. See, C- no, he's it's quite similar. Okay, but, uh, French but, Jesus. But very. That's closer, okay? Okay. But Cyril, Cyril, the CEO of the Asia Le Mans series, um, we caught up about what is looking set to be a pretty remarkable season. And Cyril, uh, stick with us on this one. It's a good insight into just what's been going on with major championships, organizations and the challenges they've faced through COVID, the choices that have had to be made, how they've got there, what you do about contingency planning. But in particular, um, he did tell me gave, me, gave me a little bit of news, which has not been out there before now, about uh, some record-breaking news to come for the Asia Le Mans series. So we've got uh, about 20, 25 minutes uh, with Surreal before we get round to our regular program for the weekend sportscast.
0: So, Instead of the four categories you normally work from, we're adding a fifth just this time named Cyril. And then when we're done, because we're splicing this in after we finish recording and forgot to do this up front, which is my fault, and you just referenced Inside the Sports Car Paddock, which actually you're not going to hear us reference for the first time till quite a ways into the show, but we're going to mention it up here like we did before. Um, We're going to roll into the normal categories, and you're going to hear Graham do it. Like just a steamroller, like he's picking right up from the conversation with Cyril. But the little secret, it's actually the way we were going to originally start the show till we remembered after we finished, oh yeah, maybe we should insert the Cyril conversation like we talked about a few days ago, Pruitt, you idiot. So anyways, if nothing else, my complete incompetence is your gift. It's your weekly gift, and let's get going with... Graham Goodwin, speaking with, yeah, he might have a name on his birth certificate, but for now on and every day forward, we're just going to refer to Cyril Wallen as French Jesus.
2: Just exactly where in France are you, Cyril Hi, Graham. Um, I'm in Angoulême, uh, which is my hometown, 100 kilometers north of Bordeaux, and uh, I will be in Le Mans uh, on Monday morning for a steering committee.
1: Uh, we're going to talk uh, for a little wee while this morning about plans for and progress with the Asia Le Mans series. Talk a little bit about the journey this year. We had a fantastic season in 2019-2020. You had a, I think it's fair to say, really interesting calendar coming together um, for 2020-2021. And then 2021 decided to have it, uh, 2020 rather, decided to have it say. Tell us a little bit about the journey through this most extraordinary year before we get to the really good news to come. Yeah,
2: Graham, I wouldn't call that a journey. Uh, It would have been nice, you know, but uh, I would rather call it a a hell of a ride, you know, a roller coaster. Um, Yeah, of course, as you you know, we were planning to to start uh, in Suzuka um, last week, actually um that was um a first uh, not only to start in Japan the asian endurance series but uh, to to be in Suzuka for the first time and everybody was really much looking forward to this um absolute great event that we were building together with our friends from um Suzuka so um but of course uh, as you know things uh, have been a bit different this year from, and um as you may remember after the bend in, in January, when, when we went back from the second event of the previous season, uh, some of the teams that were competing with us uh, couldn't join us for the two last rounds in Southeast yep. Asia uh, because of the uh, ongoing COVID-19 pandemic in China. And teams from uh, China, and they, they were from Wuhan, actually, and, and, and Taiwan, couldn't join us for the, the remainder of the season. So we were already... Kind of, you know, monitoring very closely COVID-19 situation for the last two rounds of of last season, and uh, there's no COVID-19 has not been stranger to Asian Le Mans for, for for almost a year now, and um, and it's been a, a bit of an unreal situation because we we have, um, as I said. Uh, ride on a roller coaster since probably uh, yeah, nine months now because um, we, we, we left Thailand on the 26th of February and they, they announced that they were cancelling MotoGP in Boram just two weeks after we left the country so it's, and I haven't been in, in Asia yet uh, since uh, I came back uh, from Thailand in February, so wow. I really yeah, yeah, um, but anyway I, I, uh, I mean,
1: but, but to put that into context, that the, the, the impact the had on you physically travel I know from the number of times that you know you and I have spoken in previous years how many times would you have normally expected to make that long-haul trip the in the intervening period if things have been normal it's um, not one, it's not one or two is it no no
2: most of the time uh, I'm in Asia I'm traveling in Asia 120 days a year wow so yeah that was a big change um, my family was not complaining, I have to say. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> on the other hand, uh, you, you know that the Asian the Amour uh, team uh, works remotely for, for almost six years now. So from that perspective, uh, lockdown in our respective countries has not really much affected our ability to work as a team and to keep in touch with each other, of course, and with the stakeholders and with the teams and drivers. So and, uh, at the end of the day... We have not been affected by the lockdown effects and the inability of traveling have not really, has not really impacted our, um, the ability of the Asian team to work together and prepare what is now going to be the um, February Abu Dhabi-only uh, calendar we have eventually put together. Um, yeah. Let's talk about that. Because we we spoke briefly about
1: Suzuka, which was going to be and I hope in the future, and, you know, we can talk about that will be um, again the first time we'd have seen uh, contemporary uh, sports car, mixed class sports car racing at Suzuka that well, had to fall. But it did seem that decisions were made very quickly for the Age of Le series to do something very different. Tell us a bit about that time frame, because you were quick out the box in announcing a radical change to the way that this series was going to be operating for uh, 2020-2021, albeit that there had to be a change since then. So, So tell us a little bit about just how quickly the realities of the situation
2: impacted. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, uh, with regards to Japan, um, obviously, uh, Japan is a very important part of the um, Asian more series map. And of course, we would like to go back to Japan as soon as possible. That's, that's a given. Okay. So uh, we are already working on that. And uh, I already have a tentative calendar for 21-22. Okay. So this is something which hopefully can be announced. Uh, and of course, depending on the COVID-19 situation um, by February when when we start our next season. Um, You you know, as I told you previously, Graham, we have been kind of monitoring COVID-19 and and the evolution of the pandemic worldwide since we came back from Australia uh, mid-January this Mm. year. Um, So, of course, this and having already some of the teams unable to uh, join us for the two uh, last rounds of the season in Malaysia and Thailand was already something to be taken into serious account. Um, Because to the contrary of what uh, people enjoy in Europe, in terms of having no borders to cross within the, the Schengen area, things are completely different in Asia and make things very, very complicated. And as a result, we have seen what happened, uh, eventually in Asia, um, compared to the previous seasons, you know, uh, except some Chinese uh, local championships, national championships and, and Macau nothing really happened. Um, which is a shame, but now I, I know that everybody's working very hard on making sure that it resumes, you know, in, in, as early as possible in, turn, in 2021. So as a, with that in mind, uh, and knowing and looking at what was going on in Europe, um, and in the USA as well, um, As a race promoter, it would have been crazy just to stand and stare at things and watching the news and and just wait for good news. No, as a race promoter, it would have been crazy not to think about contingency planning. Um, But the the way we have done that is, of course, um, very early in the process, um, speak the truth. To the stakeholders and the teams, and um, told them that uh, to stay on the safe side, it was it would be reasonable n- not to think about being in a position to race safely in uh, in 2020 in Asia. Hence, the decision to to start later, namely in 2021, and then look at the different opportunities. And, of course, given the aftermath of the COVID-19 and, and the lockdown and, and the, the, the old, all the, the negative effects on the teams, um, we, we needed to tick to as many boxes as possible. And by putting the Southeast Asia-only calendar in, in, in Sepang and, and Boram, we wanted to address the, the team situation budget-wise and making uh, making it um, feasible from, from a... From a timing perspective, we know that most of the joining Asian more on a regular basis they they, they, they restart their their uh, national or other or main championship um, the year after in late March, early April, etc. so we we have a, a window which for years we know it 's not the more comfortable to work with, but somehow you know we we, we managed to deal with that but. We had exceptional circumstances, and we really needed to to address the economical thing and, and the timing perspective. So, and, and we, uh, after having received unanimous support from the paddock and stakeholders, um, we. I, decided... I th- and I think, and I think, I think I can uh,
1: chime in there and say, you know, I started to get calls at that time. Um, asking for review, asking for information, asking, and this is from teams that hadn't previously joined uh, the series, that that was doing two things. The fact that it was a plan in place early uh, and the fact that it was communication. And actually, the third thing is the fact that it was going to be cheaper um, with the three things that were coming forward as being massively big ticks in the boxes from teams that at that stage, lest we forget, were still in lockdown, uh, we're still unable to do anything, really, in terms of commercial activity. And we're looking for opportunities to uh, go forward with some sort of certainty, some form of planning. And I, you know, I don't know about your immediate re- re- reaction to it, Surreal, but my impression from the, at the time in terms of the traffic that I was getting sitting in my office at the bottom of the garden was that something positive was going on out there in a world of motorsport at that time was frankly just at a full stop
2: we had the feeling that we were addressing the right boxes for the teams Uh, and of course keeping in mind that we needed to find a way to go back racing with asian le mans and and not to to just simply cancel the season because this could have Terrible effects, you know, and uh, who knows what's going on if you if you if you if you drop completely one season because it's also the whole chain, which is uh, at stake at that moment, because if you don't have a series, then you have teams not racing and if they don't race, they don't build their customers And, and it's the consequences are much wider. Than just having a race being cancelled or a series being cancelled for for a race promoter to be able to come back the year after or whatever it's it's all, the whole industry the, the the complete the ecosystem has been really much shaken up in 2020 and um, being part of of, of the ACO and we, we needed to find a way and do what, whatever was possible. To to, uh, to to keep uh, the confidence uh, and this is why at the end of May we made the decision uh, with, with Pierre Fillon to go for this uh, second uh, calendar which was the uh, Sepang and Buram only calendar with two races at each event.
1: Yeah. Okay. And that was the plan for quite some time. The world then moves on and we get to the point where because, as you say, you're tracking uh, what's going on. At what point did you come to the conclusion that a contingency plan was going to be required here to that um, revised calendar?
2: So again, as, as I said, uh, when you have a plan, normally you, you should think about having a, a plan B yep. uh, immediately. So, uh, of course, we've been monitoring the situation in, in Thailand. and I have to say, we had... Some very positive feedback from uh, both authorities from from uh, Thailand and Malaysia. The problem is that uh, motorsports didn 't come as a priority you know of course uh, within okay. that uh, global context and we started to think about what could be the alternative plan, the contingency plan for Asian more should it not work with these two countries and After a couple of weeks, it became rather obvious that it would be really difficult um, to get these two countries approve officially the travel corridor and the bubble we needed to operate and to be authorised to enter these two countries respectively. Um, Their agenda was different, Uh, the context was a bit different, Um, but we've somehow started to feel that it would be super complicated and at the end of the day, maybe even more difficult for us than we thought in the first place to have to to, to move all the paddock um, and, and ask team to be confident enough to ship containers for a five weeks uh, trip on a vessel uh, and maybe having to um, to change our plan along the way and then we would have been in trouble because you know, you know <laughs> it takes time to. To bring a container back from Southeast Asia to another another area of the world, so uh, when we to make long story short, because it's been weeks and weeks of talks <laughs> and negotiations and waiting and waiting and waiting, um, we of course uh, because of the relationship we have and with with uh, with uh, our friend and Yas Marina, I started to elaborate a, pl- a plan with them and, and seek for feasibility, etc. And but but this time. Um, really wanting the full Champions Series all the, the whole platform at the same venue to limit even more the, the risk of having to travel from a country to the other and to avoid logistics uh, in the meantime which would as well keep, uh, would, would contribute towards um, more uh, saving for teams you know uh, compared to a normal season I mean, so, it's, a,
1: it's a substantial percentage saving for teams, isn't it? First, that leap to the two-venue championship and then again to it's a, a to... It's a combination.
2: It's a combination of um, the fact that staying at the same venue for, for, this, for the, the whole, all four races uh, is already a saving because you don't move containers from a venue to the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't pay important tax or custom clearance duties in, from a country to the other. So that's that's something already. And it's also a question of timing, as I said previously. If you deal correctly with that very short window of time we have, you also allow team to see freight back for the inbound and the outbound uh, and, and make sure that teams, if they want or if they can't afford F-rating, they can see freight safely. Uh, so that's the, this combination of the the timing and the fact that we are not moving containers and the, the teams in abu dhabi are going to set up once and dismantle ones because we are lucky enough to be uh, to have been able to to manage and, and deal with the yasmar in the circuit to uh, for the teams to keep the garages for three weeks in a row so that's that's one
1: quick kind of gap there. We've got two races in effectively a long weekend. We've then got a gap and then another two races for a long weekend. Just to be clear, what, why that week's gap in the
2: middle? Oh, yeah. it's all, again, it's also, a, it's a question of combination, again, of different parameters. You, you, to do, uh, you know, international racing, you, you need marshalling, uh, yep. the proper level of marshalling and they, they need to be available. And you have support series uh, like the FIA uh, F3 Asia Championship and the Formula 4 UAE, um, which will join us for, for, these, uh, for the series. So they, they have their own calendar. We have our own constraints. So f- for the time being, it's something which is settled as is. And uh, I, I think given the reason, given the fact that teams are going to do four races in three weeks, um, it's probably better for, to, for, for everybody to have, to have a gap if things require that we try to condense the calendar even more, we'll try. But it's it's a step-by-step process. Um, we're probably going to, to stay as is. Anyway, we need first and foremost to wait for the Formula One GP to take place in Abu Dhabi and things will be much clearer And um, after that. Um, we're expecting lots of information. We can communicate. Uh, protocol with the teams, etc. And we're expecting very good news. Um, We are very, very confident that uh, this will be a smooth operation eventually. So, um, this is not something that, you know, given the circumstances, when you you go from a calendar that you have built yourself, going to Suzuka, Shanghai, uh, and Southeast Asia, to uh, Southeast Asia only, then to the Middle East at one venue in three weeks, it's it, it's also limiting your opportunity to, to to impose everything you want and need. You know, we, we we have been lucky to find that window, that opportunity. We are working hand in hand with Yasmer in the circuit and ADMM, um, and, and and that's very very positive for everyone. Um, I would say, you know, condensing the calendar even more might have pros and cons, uh, and positive, but also negative. Um, and downsides Mm -hmm. Uh, it might not be as good as some may think Um, I'm not ruling this out completely 100% because we will see within a couple of weeks what's the situation like but uh, I rather you know see that as a as a last last contingency plan if we needed to condense even more the championship It's going to be very tough, you know. Um, already, so.
1: And in mean, fairness. I'm not hearing a huge amount of pushback from from customers, and we're going to get to uh, the question about your customers' feelings on this and the the response from them in just a moment. But I'm not hearing a massive amount of pushback from, from no, no. them at All. I no, mean, I, no, exactly. I think I and think I think, we, I think a lot of people. We have, have been... to
2: thank we have to thank them all for for the support because I I, I told you that uh, when we moved from the. Um, first calendar to the, to the, to the uh, Southeast Asia one, we got unanimous support from stakeholders and the teams. And uh, when we did it again uh, for, for the, this Plan C in Abu Dhabi, we also got unanimous support. And when we announced it, they were all aware and they were 100% supporting us. And this is something I would like to thank them all again because uh, when we made, uh, and Pierre Fillon agreed on, on all this and supported the fact that it. Would be preferable for Asian to choose that option, which is not the ideal option at the end of the day because we would have loved to go to Suzuka, of course, or you know, Australia, Sepang, um, Boreram, and we will be back there. But given the circumstances, a- a- having managed to put that together, I mean, is something which is very, very important. That I'm very proud of because. With Pierre Fillon, we are providing all, all, all these teams a platform, which uh, to date is, is still uh, looking very, very positive. And, um, and we are working flat out with ADMM, uh, Abu Dhabi Motorsports Management, Adias Marina Circuit to, to deliver this platform and um, you know, F, FIA, F3 Asia and Formula 4 UAE have uh, confirmed their calendar uh, last week. Uh, everything is moving forward and we are all very much looking forward to go back racing and, and, and see all the teams again. You know, it's, um, and I think that yes uh, I always want to look at the glass half full. This is a crazy year. This is an unreal situation. Uh, unexpected, but we have to adapt. And um, we have been flexible enough and uh, quick enough to anticipate and, and modify things and come to the stakeholders with alternative options that we have had the time to discuss with them and fine tune. And we have, as such, created opportunities for newcomers or yeah. teams already racing within the ACO uh, racing environment in, in the LMS or WEC on Michelin and Le Mans Cup to, to have a try. And, 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 and that's something which we have to look at more than, you know, keep thinking about the crazy year we have been through, because anyway, <laughs> this will be in 2021. And uh, I, I think this is also a way for, for the ACO to show that we can create, being flexible, you can create new opportunities and and, and eventually bring new customers that we hope will will enjoy the the, the trip, the journey, the ride uh, for this very, very intense 4-4 uh, four, four races platform in, in February. And then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But we need to go back racing. I just can't wait, you know, Graham.
1: But we've got two more questions. The, the, the If you like, the cherry on the top is going to come right at the end here. But the other quick thought that occurs to me, we talked about the bend. And for those that don't know, this was the first ever um, – Asia Le Mans series race, uh, first uh, ACO organized race uh, in Australia. The last time we had a mixed um, sports car race was uh, the race for 1,000 years in 2000, uh, just up the road. But that great success, uh, massively welcomed by the Aussie fan base. Uh, I know you've already said that that's somewhere you'd like to go back to. Suzuka still is very much on, on the cards. You know, our friends around the rest of Southeast Asia. But the thought occurs to me. With the exception of the WEC going to Bahrain, um, this is another first. This is the first time we'll have seen mixed-class sports car racing on the Yas Marina circuit. And Correct. Does, does this give you an opportunity to take a look about even further new horizons for the Asian Le series in the future? Time will tell.
2: <laughs> time not will the, tell not that I'm pressurizing you <laughs> no, no no but you know the, the area is already very wide and you know that uh, but it's a great opportunity I mean and the facility at Yas Marina is absolutely amazing so yeah. and, and, and this is also contributing towards the attractiveness of this very special platform uh, and series we're going to enjoy in, in, in two months now uh, but of course uh, Japan, China is very important uh, as you know it's a, it's a market, it's a world in itself, Japan is very important uh, we have already said that we would like to go back. We, we, we will go back to Australia. For the moment, they have a problem, which is the fact that their borders are, are supposed yep. to stay closed for a long while still. So, But, you know, it's, uh, things are in the pipe and we'll see how things develop, you know, because we also need to have the ability to travel because um, yep. if travel restrictions stay as is, it, it, this may cause uh, problems for, for the future. But it, it's still very fluid, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm very confident. And of course, We we have to first see how it uh, it works uh, at Yas Marina and what's the the team's feeling about uh, having experienced this. What I'm very happy with is that uh, after the frustration of the Sepang event last year and the the huge storm and lightning strikes, having (laughs) completely destroyed TV production, uh, and you remember, uh, oh yeah, (laughs) you you were there in the commentary booth. Uh, I've been very frustrated not to enjoy the, the the live feed, you know, a complete live live track feed with the, the, this night race because we only had what maybe two cameras left to yeah. to, to cover the, uh, the, the the race. So I'm very happy that we can have these day and night races at Yas Marina, which is uh, fully lit It looks like Singapore F1 Grand Prix, you know. Uh, this, kind, this kind of equipment. So it, it's going to be amazing and, and a great experience for the, for the drivers. We, we wanted to give, going um, in Southeast Asia, we, we wanted to give teams the, the flavor and the feeling of, of, of having four different races, even if we went to only two venues. And go, going to uh, one venue only, it, it was important for us to, to try, give Teams and drivers a different feel uh, for every race. That's why we're going to use two different layouts: uh, the 4.7 uh, uh, so-called corkscrew layout in uh, Yas Marina for the first event, doing day and night racing, and um, and for the, for the second event using the uh, GPF1 layout, which is a uh, 5 plus 5.5. Uh, if if I'm not mistaken, uh, and and a twilight and a a night race as well. So, this, you know, uh, trying to to make things a little bit bit different. Um, But I think that everybody understands that 2020 has has been so special that, of course, it's a special season. Uh, We are not aiming at, you know, running a full championship at the same venue ever again. Uh, yep. But it creates opportunities, and um, it's um, again, it, it's um, it's about being being quick, uh, anticipating things, and having the support from the ACO, and being flexible, you know, and, uh, and, and and feeling and understanding what the market needs, you know, uh, as a whole, not, not looking at your 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 finger, you know, yeah. when you when so, <laughs> when someone points the moon, don't look at the finger, <laughs> look at the moon.
1: So that confirms that it's gonna be again um the one of the factors that's brought a global audience, and a very impressive global audience to Asia Le Mans. It's gonna be live, it's gonna be free to view, it's gonna be on your regular platforms, no geoblocks, uh for live uh video for qualifying and the races. Correct. Um let's talk about what that show is gonna be like. So the class system is pretty simple. It's gonna be very familiar to people that follow uh, endurance Racing, ACO Rules Racing Worldwide. Yeah. LMP2 with the 2017 spec, the Gibson Power Cars. LMP3 for the first time in Asia Le Mans series, the new cars, yes. uh, the brand new 2020 spec cars, and GT3. Now, we've seen a few announcements already. We've seen a few yeah. of the teams coming forward. Yeah, that's and this, is, and this is where you are going to have to be quite careful not to blurt out... I think uh, what sounds to me from talking to your team and from talking to the teams, something potentially quite extraordinary is building here. What can you tell us about what people are going to be able to see um, on the grid at Abu Dhabi?
2: Graham, first, first, fingers crossed, okay? (laughs) Of course. Um, Entries officially close. On December 15th, uh, next week, some of the teams have already uh, made official announcements. Uh, and of course, uh, we need to wait for the, the others to be fully ready to, to send their press releases out. So we, we need to respect this and we, we can't really communicate about what um, some will do or not because they are not ready yet. But there you come and uh, we have lots of things in the pipe. Uh, We will probably release um, next week. Um, What I can tell you to date is that if things keep going like this, I'm very happy to tell you that we are on our way to um, break the um, Asian American Grid record. Wow. Um, Because... I still think that this would be a 30-plus car grid.
1: And in those circumstances that you have just described over the last 25 minutes or so, that uh, I'm sure you're not quite at that point yet, Cyril, <laughs> but that must give you a source of... Well, is it pride? Is it relief? What is it?
2: Um, it's both. Uh, and it's also something which is... Very, I'm very grateful, and it's very rewarding to to get that kind of support from stakeholders and an entire paddock. Uh, it's not me only. It's the fact that we have put together a proposal, which is the Abu Dhabi only uh, February 2021 platform, and it, it it looks like it's some it looks like it's something that have been very well received by the by the uh, the industry and um, bringing new newcomers that are going to enjoy their first. Um, ACO racing environment experience. Uh, I'm very happy for the ACO because it's been a tough year, um, and um, you know it's um, it's good because we're attracting new new teams. Uh, they, hopefully, they will want to continue with us when we go back to a more normal calendar with different venues for the 21-22 season. Um, it's been hard work, no question about that. I'm I'm very happy that we are. Such a good uh, mood in the team since March, and uh, I'm very thankful that they have, they have worked so hard with me to deliver this. Because, but now again, fingers crossed. You know, <laughs> we we can have this, this interview again on the on the 21st of February. But uh, I mean, to date, yes, it's been. It's been uh, a hell of a ride, as I told you when we started, and uh, we'll know exactly next next week. But I, I, I think I'm confident that we can announce a 30-plus plus car grid. And this is something, um, you know, we, we had 29 cars on the grid in Too three, High three years ago with 16 GT3 cars. Um, and uh, yes, I, I think that um, this Asian Mall Series grid will be will be bigger than what we had in, in Juhai once. So, and I'm I'm very happy because I think, and you will see next week, it it, it will be somehow rather balanced between the LMP cars and the GT cars. So it's uh, it's going to look like uh, fantastic racing, you know. And this is the most important.
0: Uh,
1: absolutely fantastic news. I mean, from the bits and pieces, I know that are coming. I know that are coming. Um, I will add what I don't think you feel you can, which is we're going to see some returning teams and faces. We're going to see some brand new teams and faces to the Asian Le Mans series and in some cases to ACO Rules Racing. Um, There's an awful lot of new coming. And isn't that after what has been one of the most difficult years in most of our lives, Cyril, isn't that something to just give you that nice, warm feeling coming into the Christmas season?
2: Uh, for sure, this will be a good memory and one of the best memories of the Asian Le Mans. You know? that's, that's for sure. And we, we need to end up 2020 with, on a high. And for us, with the Asian Le Mans team, if we are, if we announce this 30 plus car agreed and every everything goes smoothly in February, yes, that that will be quite an achievement given the circumstances and the aftermath of the COVID 19 situation globally. But, and and again, this is something I'm very proud of personally for the ACO and for w- what we are trying to achieve and build um, in Asia um, with the with the ACO. And that that's very very important, you know.
1: So the message is simple to our friends across Southeast Asia and Japan and China, Thailand, Malaysia, and down in Australia. We'll be back. But for now, bear with us. Something extraordinary may well be coming to Abu Dhabi in February. I'm going to say thank you very much for the just over half an hour that you've not had an opportunity in the last half an hour to communicate with your partners and your teams. <laughs> and that's unusual. Um, keep an eye on the news websites over the next uh, few days and weeks, because there are some excellent announcements still to come about the Asian Mans series and a gathering grid. I'll just say this on behalf of our listeners and the viewers we have for Asian Mans series and people who follow, uh, Uh, Endurance Racing Worldwide. Thank you, Suwil Tashvalan, for being a steady hand through what have been very choppy waters, indeed, through 2020. Uh, I sincerely hope that the show you get to head up when we get down into the Gulf in February uh, does justice to the efforts you've been putting in for a very tough six or ten months, indeed. Suwil Tashvalan, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Graham. So, So be it, you know, and looking forward to seeing you in Abu Dhabi in February. Thank I've you. Got the, I've got the job, have I? Excellent. <laughs> I wouldn't dare saying you're dismissed, you know. <laughs> surreal, surreal, thank you very much. You're welcome, Graham. Talk soon. Bye-bye.
1: We're going to kick it off with him, sir. And you are? you are traditionally that means it's uh that i become the interrogator and you become the answerer of the questions
0: interrogatee
1: maybe indeed okay. that's a good word sure it's not a real word but it's a good word um but so uh, which means it's got to go in the twistery um so we're going to kick off with one from nick dovniak uh, and he
0: dovniak. Says,
1: do, do keep doing this, don't I? It's okay. It's not a real surname. It's not a real surname. I do apologise, Nick. Um, Dovniak. What is the cost difference between running a GTE and a GT3 car? Can't think it's all that different, considering two of the models can convert back and forth. How does moving to a GT3 Pro formula help bring in new teams if the cost is going to be in the same ballpark? Doesn't see Lamborghini or Audi chomping at the bits going, if only one of our car fits into the Pro category, we would totally be there. It's a reasonable question, isn't it?
0: It is... The main thing to keep in mind though, Nick, where this becomes more affordable, that's French by the way, no it's not, Uh, we have a situation where one vehicle is, we'll just call it spec, that being the GT3 form, and I realize they aren't quote spec, but compared to a GTE slash GTLM car where the constructor is responsible for the entire thing, and it is a unique creation of their own compared to an assembly line version, one that is comparatively mass-produced. You have a situation of numbers that aren't necessarily favorable for those who are running factory GTE slash GTLM efforts, even those who are running uh, privateer GTE programs. We know this because the support package Being offered to privateers to run a gte slash gtlm car those numbers are fairly astronomical Uh, that is why we see so few of them being run uh, as privateer efforts so you just have a very unique situation here nick where with the gtle gtle sure gte (laughs) gtlm rules uh, tends to be very small production numbers therefore There's a lot of bespoke on those vehicles, even if they're homologated and you can't change them. It's not as if there's a deep, deep well of, you know, dozens and dozens of spares sitting around as you would have in the case of the majority of GT3 um, machines that are produced. So when you're putting together the budget, tires aren't going to be vastly different running a 24-hour race with a gt3 porsche versus a gtlm porsche uh consumables in terms of brakes and so on again a lot of the things are fairly similar but you do get into a a pretty different area where the support cost from a manufacturer is large spares package is stonking insane in terms of costs then you got maybe one other area nick and i know that this is it might be a wee bit esoteric but A GT3 car is built to be run a ton, serviced relatively easily. They are built, duh, with customers in mind. Your average GTLM, GTE car, not necessarily built for that. Uh, They are high, high performance instruments that tend to need a higher level of tuning and maintenance to remain at that higher level. Of performance and whether it is personnel engineers or just simply the parts and pieces to do that uh the lifing on parts and componentry tends to be shorter therefore there's more cost involved so again on the outside they might look pretty similar but indeed one is meant is pretty much designed from the outset to be very unique and unique costs more money and so mm-hmm. Uh, sure, there would certainly be savings by going to GT3 uh, Pro. Where, where there isn't necessarily uh, any limitations would be the, all right, well, how much do you want to spend as a factory to beat the others? If the vehicles are lower cost to maintain, run, spares, et cetera, great. There's still no limitation on a factory wanting to do uh, an insane amount of, Virtual testing uh aerodynamic seven post shaker rig, etc. Uh there's plenty of ways for these costs to creep up. I would just say cost though, Nick, to close on this. There's going to be some cost savings for sure, but I would not say that is really the impetus behind this, Graham. It's hey, uh the 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 mood is evolving a bit from, hey, we want to do these really unique GTE-based cars that are we build them ourselves, we run them ourselves, can't have them unless we want you to, and we get to be super unique and have our own class to play in. Uh, Just the mood's changing a bit towards, well, okay, what if we were to just use more of the ones that we build for sale and potentially be a little less unique and private? So I'd say there's just a, a changing fortune there. Uh, based on what we've seen with manufacturer pullout after manufacturer pullout. Uh, It's also a really easy line item to cut when it's just strictly, hey, we're playing for ourselves, and there's no sales aspect to it. There's no money coming back. It's more or less all going out. Uh, That has just become less um, tenable. We're seeing, Graham, for sure that more manufacturers like, as we've heard uh, when we get to talking about LMDH, one of the things that tipped the Volkswagen Audi Group towards LMDH compared to Lamont Hypercar, hey, we can go to a single-source chassis. We can very likely do power plants that are the same in both cars. We can do a lot of things that are mm-hmm. uh, super cost-efficient, and we can see that instead of a big line item uh, to play strictly as a factory, we could probably sell some of these things too. And all of these smart cost angles... Uh, efficiency angles, a lot of these things are being better accepted, better tolerated by uh, those who allocate money for such things. So cost is there, but I think we're also seeing just this general belief of like, okay, tell us the other ways this is good for us. And hey, oh, guess guess what? This happens to be in something where uh, we're racing what we're also selling.
1: Yeah, and uh, the, the other uh, major point is it, it's an easy want to, to look at is the two cars you mentioned. These cars that can be either a GTD or a GTLM, Ferrari and Aston Martin are the two current cars. What's the major items that have to be switched between those two cars to make them comply? It's the engine for both of them. It's a different engine you need for them. Engine costs massive in motor racing, uh, particularly in the kind of endurance racing um, field that we're talking about here. We're going to move on with something on a kind of similar vein. Josh Johnson. Uh, says, with the talk of the possibility of a GTD Pro class to replace GT11, and a general understanding that GT3 Plus is not possible, he asks, why not? GT3s are balanced. Combined test. some are brought up and some are pulled back. Why can't they add a little bit more HP or aero to take away weight to make the Pro cars faster, then maybe modify HP, aero or weight to make the AM cars a little slower? Hashtag me personally wants to see a speed difference in the cars so that when the pros are in the AM cars, they aren't really in the mix with the pro cars. Otherwise we just have one class and whoever wins wins. I can give you a bit of um, comment here about what happens in WEC, which is obviously GT LM. Well, there, there is a different BOP between the, um, the AM and the pro cars. It's not massive. It can be marginal. um, And also uh, in previous years, we've had different tires as well uh, between the, Pros and the AM cars, with the pro cars getting confidential tyres, the AM cars getting uh, customer tyres, and indeed, there often is a bit of a difference. Oddly, we've seen a little less of that lately. The, the uh, BOP has been pretty close. The tyres are now more or less as they should be, uh, the same across the two classes. And what does that mean? It means when you put a very fast Porsche driver in a Dempsey Proton car, he's going to get in amongst the pro cars in qualifying in, in certain aspects of the race. And that works pretty well. Um, I think that's uh, that's uh, generally a good thing. Take the point, though. What say you, Marshall Pruitt?
0: The only thing that needs to would need to take place here, Josh, is just sizing uh, and robustness. So if we're talking about speeding up GT3 cars, going to be more along the brakes and tires that we would have to really consider in terms of durability. Uh, If we're going faster, we're going to need more stopping power. Uh, Potentially, we're going to need tires that can better withstand uh, greater braking forces, greater cornering loads, etc., to uh, be suitable throughout a stint. Comparatively, if we're slowing one down, uh, slowing the AM cars down, It's never bad to have more brakes than necessary, but, again, sizing is important and getting the overall vehicle package right. Uh, Aero, again, you can, quote, take aero away or add, but you have to balance it, right? So it's not just a we're going to put a bigger or smaller wing on. It's what do we have to do up front with a splitter? Do we do dive planes? What do we do to give the car, whether we're actually going to go faster or slower, the appropriate handling balance that can be achieved and tunability to make the car perform. So again, uh, all imminently possible here just takes work. So that's why I would say for those who are wondering why even bother with GTLM this year in IMSA, knowing that we expect to only have two full-time factory cars from Corvette, we expect a privateer full-time from Scuderia Corsa, and the two bmws to show up for the endurance races why even bother with so few cars well if we really are going to go to this uh gt3 pro and am class delineation we're going to need more time for michelin for those manufacturers for brake vendors and all kinds of vendors to get involved and find the right levels of separation and then also uh, modify those respective cars to live and perform at those levels, uh, the way that they should. So just not something we're going to do during a single short off season. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is not too big of an ask here. Your, your comment about reducing, uh, modifying horsepower. I don't foresee horsepower going up much. I would say if anything, it might go down. That would probably be the uh, an area where things are, are modified to create some separation, that too is something that requires a proper looking into. And, you know, the camshafts and the pistons and the all kinds of things that are put into the motors as they run right now are, to, are designed to perform at the current level. If we're knocking 20, 30 horsepower off, well, guess what? Those cams might not do it, though so the compression ratio might not be what we really need. So could there be changes to the engine internals as well? Again, these are these are all the decisions that have to be made uh, and agreed upon and then acted upon. So this is going to happen, though. Um, it's not like they're just going to say, OK, all the GT3 AM cars, you get Two gear ratios to work with, <laughs> pick them, <laughs> and or everyone gets a single gear. Uh, you know uh, who knows, but I everything you're talking about here, I think is uh, uh, pretty straightforward in terms of having to create that speed difference.
1: Let's move. Uh, well, it's still a GT3 GTLM uh, question. This time it comes from Dennis Brodniak. Um with the gtlm going away he says in 2022 that's with confidence uh, corvette c8r morphing into gt3 stateside again said with confidence what happens to corvette racing's participation in the 24 hours of le mans where gte rules rule will they keep two cars in gte spec just for that one race a year or transform the active gt3 cars into gte and back Will they decide the lack of regular GT race experience will render them uncompetitive competitive at Le Mans against the WC entries anyway, like that year when they're different spec tires, but worse, just stop coming to France altogether? Or perhaps it's just time to stick the small block into a pointy-nosed yellow LMDH, like now that anything can be called a Corvette anyway.
0: There we what go. Do you Uh, it's a, that's all the bases covered. It is. Uh, Thanks for doing our job for us, by the way, too. Uh, Dennis. So I would just tell you that, uh, this stands out to me as the great question. We still don't have an answer for, and I know that's uh, not what you are looking for in terms of an answer, but I don't know. We don't know. We have full confidence that Corvette will be in this new GT3 based, uh, replacement for GTLM over here what that means to Corvette going across to France every year, continuing to do that. Genuinely don't know if that is a strategy where I think we're going to learn some interesting things about General Motors racing plans and strategies somewhat soon. And there's a traditional aspect to their Le Mans participation, right? We know this past year or this past event They elected to not go for reasons we understand, Uh, but if they're going to end up racing in a class in the USA, which replaces the one which is universal that they can compete in in the U.S., uh, at Lamar in the WEC, would they hold on to GTE spec C8R's commission? I don't know. uh, Just a testing plan of their own? Uh, show up and do the Super Sebring event in them so that they get a feel for it and send them over to France for years to come. I don't honestly know, but it does seem a little bit weird. And I don't mean weird, bad, like they're doing anything uh, different or wrong, but just based on the more or less collapse of the class that they're in over here uh, to keep playing in IMSA in their home home sandlot would require using vehicles that don't comply at the place they love to go. That might be a thing that could make it challenging. Dennis, it really could. Asking for a secondary budget to do all the prep and running needed to compete at Le Mans, that might be a bit of a tall ask right now. And I'm not so much thinking 2021, obviously 2022 and however much longer after that, but You'd have to believe, Graham, that they would want to at least check in a little bit and go do a WEC race here or there, Mm -hmm. since running the car over here uh, is not an option to continue to gain information and whatnot about it to apply uh, over in France. So I don't know, Dennis. I mean, I'm just, uh, again, I can give you theories and thoughts and possibilities, but if we're just going to speak truth, I don't know. And it does seem like it might be an outlier that doesn't survive. If we happen to stick with this GT three pro thing for years to come, uh, knowing that GM has been pretty loud and saying in the very near future, electrification is going to be us and who we are. This might be a fight, uh, internally in, in, in marketing and presentation wise to commit seven figures plus just to go do this one race that really they aren't able to prepare for properly over here in the U.S., that would require a significant budget, I would think, Graham, to do more than one WEC race per year to replace what they aren't learning here in the U.S.
1: Which which I think would have to be a given. They, I think they would be very actively encouraged to do exactly that. Remember, we were due to see uh, the, the debut of the C8R and the WEC at Super Sebring, you know, both races, the MSA and the W C race. Of course that didn't happen, but I think that would be a given, uh, in terms of trying to assess the balance of performance needs for the car. I think we, you know, you, I think you're spot on, MP, when, you know, you say that we're we must be about to find out a fair amount about the direction that GM will be taking for their Endurance road racing programmes moving forward. And I think the same is going to be the case for the other major players here. Aston Martin, you know, uh, know, we've we've all heard and have seen and in some cases have read some of the rumour and speculation that's out there. Uh, there are decisions to be made by you we know, you know porsche are committed uh, for the coming season for wec there's rumors galore about what they might do what ferrari might do these decisions might be made for them and and would let's put it this way if you were as we all are listening to the weekend sports cars podcast someone who Drum. adores yes absolutely and that as well um that adores endurance long distance endurance racing Would you trade off not seeing a Corvette at Le Mans for a year, two years, against the possibility that GM might commit to a top class and bring some glorious prototypes across uh, to what could be an extraordinary grid? And against those, maybe C, maybe Ferrari, uh, rumours of hypercar, uh, maybe uh, Porsche, rumours of LMDH. I think I would say, yeah, I think I'd be prepared to kind of stand by the side and say, Let's push on through here with the grand plan of things and, you know, um, suck that bit up, I guess, for these fellow years that we're going to have ahead of us uh, in the hope and expectation that we're going to see some glories to come uh, beyond that. So, yeah, I think we'll learn a lot. Um, I think it it, it is. It's a a unique challenge that GM have got, isn't it, really, here? Um, And it's going to be I think you've nailed it, MP. We're going to learn I think, fairly soon what that strategy might look like. And more to the point, because there's at least one other question here, which brand that might be with if they stay in the game?
0: Yeah, for sure. That's where... Could I see, uh, as Graham mentioned, Dennis, could I see that what we have known as Corvette Racing's annual trip turn into starting in 2023 whichever General Motors brand, possibly likely some sort of Chevrolet, uh, possibly um, going and doing that in LMDH. I mean, that's the thing that seems most obvious right now. I just, again, we're having to pontificate a little bit uh, at this stage.
1: Right, can I ask a couple of questions here? One from Josh Richard and the other one from Oscar C. Love, another name I love, by the way. Sounds terribly, terribly like a 1970s soul singer. Um... And both about your home state, MP. Josh Ridgen says, So NASCAR has cancelled its race at the Auto Club Speedway due to California state COVID guidelines. Does this mean Long Beach and Laguna Seca events are also off, despite their later dates in the season? If the Long Beach event is cancelled, would that mean two years without a race? What are the chances of making it a recovery, or could we be losing this event permanently? Oscar says... I asked this after 2021 is racing in California dead. The governor stated he wants to ban internal combustion and engines, in the, uh, engines in the past. So two different kind of sides to the same kind of enigma for first state of California.
0: I am struggling to see how state legislature passes a ban on motor racing. So no, um, I think the point,
1: the point, the point, MP, is banning internal combustion engines.
0: Yes, and right now, motor racing is internal combustion engines. So, uh, no, I cannot see that happening. Um, get, uh, not in any reasonable time frame, because despite heavy efforts by some sectors, uh, there just aren't enough people buying uh, non internal combustion engine vehicles right now. Will that change in X amount of years? Very possibly, but we're nowhere near that right now. Um, Would say that I can't foresee Long Beach being canceled two years in a row. Uh, In the conversation that I had with the head of the Grand Prix Association of Long Beach, uh, told us that he is indeed working on a plan B for a date. I have learned, and we published on ratio.com the date that's been floated to both IMSA and IndyCar, keeping in mind that Long Beach has for many years been sports car feature race Saturday, IndyCar feature Sunday, double header. Uh, Both organizations have had September 25th, uh, the weekend of the 25th and 26th of September, presented as the fallback date. Uh, That would be one week after IndyCar's current season finale, which is scheduled for Laguna Seca, Uh, the weekend of September 18-19. IMSA, I believe, has no racing scheduled in September of next year. Uh, They head to Petit Le Mans, uh, what, I think the first weekend in October. Uh, Let me just pull up the schedule in front of me just to be double sure. Uh, Yes, so August 22nd is the GT-only event at VIR. There's then a big gap, Graham, from August 22nd uh, to October 9th, a second uh, weekend in October. So IMSA currently has nothing in September. Here's what I have heard, and I can't say that it is fact. I've just heard that this has been uh, told to teams, and I believe it's at the team's request. Uh, knowing that the absolute majority of IMSA teams are East Coast, South, Midwest, based, not California, not the West Coast, by and large. IMSA has told uh, its team owners they will only ask them to go out West once next season. That's why the schedule, as it is currently uh, designed, has the April 17 Long Beach race the following weekend, uh, or after that Long Beach race, everyone drives five-ish hours north to Laguna Seca for the IMSA race on April 25th. Then they leave the West Coast, never return. If we have a scenario where Long Beach in April, mid-April, where IMSA and IndyCar is meant to be held, does get pushed back to September, Graham, it becomes a bit of an interesting pickle. Um, if it were to be moved, it would be moved to the weekend after IndyCar's current season finale. If we're talking, how do we hold on to the current Long Beach plans of IMSS and IndyCar being there? Uh, you would have to ask teams to drive out to California to do that. Um, two weeks before your Petit Le Mans season finale. Okay. But if you've told teams you're only going to ask them to drive out to the West Coast once, and I believe those teams really only want to do that once, you then have a question. Uh, if, Lo- if Long Beach gets moved for April 17th to late September because of COVID, you would have to assume probably that Monterey on April 25th would also not be possible. So what happens? Does IMSA look to move the Laguna Seca date to later in the year? Does it see if IndyCar can somehow add them to their (laughs) September 18-19 weekend so we get effectively an IMSA IndyCar doubleheader at Laguna and then the following weekend an IMSA doubleheader with IndyCar at Long Beach? I don't know. That seems like that would be a, a pretty big stretch. So having to play guesswork with a crystal ball, none of us have. If IMSA's only coming out to the West Coast once, Long Beach in the middle of April isn't going to happen if it, that doesn't happen. We would have to think that Monterey would not happen as well. I don't really see how IndyCar says, yes, <laughs> let's do a doubleheader at our, uh, let's do a doubleheader out here, but who knows. Um, I just wonder, Graham, if IMSA would try and find another date uh, at monterey maybe earlier in september to come out and do that and say look we love long beach but uh we're not going to be able to come back i don't know i mean these are all question marks at this point in time um it, it's fair to say is
1: that that these questions they're still out there and COVID's still very much a thing but it's beginning to crystallize at least a little if nothing else the world as a whole and racing as a microcosm of the world is more aware now of where their room to manoeuvre is going to be. They're getting better at this. Um, and what I certainly sense, and I'd be keen to hear what you, you've got to say about what's happening in the US, MP, is coming up with uh, with contingency is just simply everyday business now. Uh, and whereas contingency used to be measured in you know, single percentage points, contingency now is 100%. If we can't do this, what are we going to do instead? And I'm guessing it's much the same in your fair nation.
0: Yeah, and I mentioned this on uh, yesterday's Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show, Uh, same exact topic. There's one change from last year to this year, and I can only speak on the North American front, and that is for series like NHRA, IndyCar, uh, IMSA, some of the non-NASCAR series. NASCAR receives a lot of money from its television partners to play. And so while fans are certainly needed to make things healthier, as an organization, they're able to operate without fans because they have a big chunk of money coming in for broadcast rights. That isn't the case in IMSA. IMSA pays. Uh, same with IndyCar, same with a number of other ones. There's no big fund coming down to the series that the series can then pass on to their promoters and the independent uh, you know, circuit owners that host the races. 2020 was very much a one-time deal. Uh, hey, okay, I don't know how we're going to survive, but... We will put on your race for you. We're going to ask you to shoulder some of the costs for name the thing. Um, We're going to run without fans, or we're going to run with a limited number of fans, and we can bite this bullet to put on the show. But we're not going to be able to do this again. And in speaking with Jim McHaleen from the Grand Prix Association of Long Beach, he echoed something I've heard from a number of other promoters, which is, we're not looking at yeah we can we'll hold the event we might have to move it but you know if we have to move it a little bit and run it without fans again or whatever we can do that it's not an option uh the the financial collapse is essentially a guarantee for almost every promoter and uh, independently owned circuit without fans to buy lots of tickets and hot dogs and manufacturers to rent hospitality suites and pay ungodly sums to rent vendor midway space to put up giant buildings and to sell and promote their new range of cars. You don't have fans of the track. Then you don't have manufacturers spending money to <laughs> trailer all kinds of cars and pay people to put up temporary buildings and put on this mobile auto show for no one. So there is just a broken economy here that we have to acknowledge that unless again, we're talking nascar owns daytona international speedway can they decide to swallow uh, a hard pill if there are limited or no fans they could but it's florida so we don't think that'll happen but the bigger more overriding thing here graham is this there are a lot of places that decided to shoot themselves in the foot in the name of trying to keep the racing series going and uh show good faith they can't do that again so when Long Beach is now, could that not happen in April? Well, they're talking about September because that would be what they believe is the scenario where it has a full house after hopefully everyone receives vaccines and COVID is no longer a topic of conversation. Apply that to all the other races on the calendar and that is where everyone is thinking uh, because they just have to. Um, If they don't, I mean, that's the the other side too. Without the races... And without the income coming in, it's not just a case of, oh, that event uh, will hurt us if we don't have it. It's we don't know how we meet our annual budget and keep people on staff and keep the gates open if we go two years without a meaningful investment from people showing up to do their thing uh, as as fans or vendors. So that's why I would expect, Graham, as we get a feel for COVID here and I assume uh, outside of North America, Uh, Don't be surprised, fan of whatever racing series, if things get pushed back to a date post-COVID where we can have healthy business.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to pick one more, then uh, you can have a, a bit of a grab bag. It's new listeners to the show, Robert Brum. Hello, Robert. Hey, guys. Can you talk a little bit about the process when a car changes owners at the end of, a, for instance, this IMSA season just gone? Do the previous owners reset the car to factory default, so to speak, before handing it over? He said he can't imagine Wayne Taylor tossed his caddy keys to Ganassi with the car still set up in Sebring Race trim to give his future competitor a head start.
0: Well, in that example, that certainly didn't happen. Uh, And thank you for listening, by the way. Awesome to have you. Um, That didn't happen because they didn't buy the car from them. Uh, They purchased Ricardo Juncos' entry, which was sitting unused for uh, a little over a year. So in many instances, you have cars, the majority of instances, you have cars that go back to a shop, that have whatever proprietary things removed, Uh, the car will certainly be, quote, unaligned and handed off to the new owner. There are also plenty of times where the new owner, assuming it's not a direct rival, uh, can pay to receive the car with all the setup information and so on and so forth. So that doesn't usually happen again when you're in GTD and you're buying a car from someone else in GTD. It's more of, hey, I'm going to go do something in a totally different series, run it privately or otherwise. Uh, in some instances, you have uh, manufacturers that own the cars, right? Um, the two vehicles that MeyerShank Racing ran, the two Acuras, uh-huh. for example, those are owned by HPD. And the new buyer slash buyers do deals with HPD. So technically those vehicles coming off track those are not meyer shank racings to modify or monkey with um and in the sale of those if there's anything on those cars that shank the shank team is like hey this is a custom thing we did that we like and love and it's just for us and there's the stock version that comes with the car that we're going to put back on it you'll get some of those things possibly happening but uh, right after the race, those two Myers Shank Acuras came off track, went into other people's trailers, um, and off they went. So it's, it's a bit of a, a different, a uh, bit of a different case by case scenario. But yes, definitely, when you have competition, uh, one team buying something from another in the same class, oh yeah. Um, and I'll just tell you, there can sometimes be some slightly dickish things that get done. Um, things that usually the people doing the deals and signing the checks or sending the, the money orders or wiring the money, uh, aren't fully aware of things that get taken off. Then there's often the calls that piss people off afterwards. Hey, yeah, thanks. We just got the thing and we notice that it's missing the such and such and the guy on the other end will, oh, what? And then you go to the shop floor and say, Hey, who took the, this, or what did you do with that? Or why did you do that? And, You know, sometimes there's a little bit of rivalry and fun in place, and sometimes it's just like, nah, we just didn't want them to have that. That part worked really good. So um, I'll just mention one other angle here, and it's not the team-to-team sale, but uh, I recall there was one junior open wheel and kind of junior sports car constructor here in the U.S. that made a habit of when they sold a new car they would assemble it for transport at their facility where it was built, meaning something that you could roll into a trailer uh, easily and then roll out instead of it being in boxes. But they would use the oldest, rustiest, most worn-out nuts and bolts, wrong sizes, miss, you know some metrics, some standards, some, you name it, intentionally to make sure that no one would possibly consider trying to go and use the vehicle without doing a top-down teardown and to inspect every single thing. It basically forced buyers of the new vehicles to not treat it as a turnkey thing, which some would do, but to actually, no, take real possession and ownership of this car. Strip it down because we haven't even tightened some of the nuts and bolts. Um, Tear this whole thing apart. Rebuild it yourself. Put in your own hardware that you know is new and good and everything else so that once you're done doing that, you can say for sure, we own it, we put it together, it's to our spec, uh, no blaming us if something goes wrong. So I always like that approach, Graham. It's the, yeah, I'm sure you would like to go test it right away, but no, nah, I'm not going to let you do that. <laughs>
1: Lovely. Uh, the one thing I'd add to uh, the Mike Shank thing that I do recall in the press conference that we had for the announcement of the uh, Mayor Shank and Wayne Racing accurate DPI uh, programmes, Mike actually saying that they would be there because they have season after season of successful setup information for the NSX, they would be there, ready, willing, and able to support new customers for those cars. So that's just a slightly different thing. Anything more on a bit of a grab bag approach you want to crack on with? Yeah, we're going to grab we
0: super quick because we want to get into Weckasm, Elms, Aco. Uh, Jamie Bender says, happy birthday, old man. Says uh, it's starting to get down to crunch time for teams to Thanks. solidify. Their 21 plans haven't heard anything about any female teams or drivers. Uh, are we looking at another season without a female driver in the top tier or in a top tier series? Um, it's something I need to get caught up on, Jamie. The last time you mentioned Catherine Leg here, last time I spoke with Kat was probably about a month ago. She said that there were some positive things developing and hoped. It's one of those hope to have something maybe in December to talk about. I just need to catch up and see if and where that has gone to uh where else do we go uh, ta-ta, ta-ta. uh matt neider you ask about colin brown back in a full-time role with Cor and john bennett does that mean we'll see jeff brown back on the timing stand i believe so i gotta go back and look at my last emails from jeff but um he says if so does that mean new episodes of inside the sports car paddock maybe Maybe. Those get to be a little bit hard because we aren't exactly allowed in the sports car paddocks at the moment right now. So uh, face-to-face stuff is a little bit easier um, in that regard. But I am working on a new podcast series, maybe Christmas after the New Year something, where uh, he put together a list to start of the 10 most interesting vehicles he has engineered and Ooh. given me some great bullet points on those, conversational bullet points. So we're going to start capturing some of those because that's the conversations Jeff and I enjoy the most. So um, so we will have some new Jeff for sure. Um, just definitely going to be after episode 1000, that's for sure. Uh, we're just glancing through the remainder here. Uh, Ryan Terpstra asks, uh, is Oliver Askew an amateur driver? Um, and he also asks, which Lexus driver? Uh, is the AM uh, on the Hawksworth-Aaron Tielitz pairing. Yeah, that one's a little... uh, Let's just say this. You know, Graham, we need to honor the fact that despite years of protests and just angry, uh, I guess, what, more than protests, almost taking up arms against sneaky silvers, Sneaky Silvers are still sneaky and they're still there. They're, they're not I mean, it just makes me believe that they have cockroach DNA cuz they're not going away ever. So, yeah, Oliver Askew, uh, granted IndyCar rookie last season, uh, never really driven sports cars is now going to do, he's going to be the fourth driver for Riley uh, in the 74 Ranch uh Ligier LMP3 at Daytona. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, he raced an IndyCar. He didn't have a great, great year. But uh, talent-wise, uh, he might not be someone I would look at and say he's an amp. But same thing with Aaron Thielitz. Uh So, yeah, uh, that's always fun. Uh, last thing, we're going to... Uh, let's see, we've got two things here. Chad Randall, is there any news to what Lawrence the Sextal Vantor... Um, uh, his plans for 2021 happens to be... Uh, would it be customer GTD racing like Earl Bamber or something in the WEC? All I can tell you, Chad, is I have a story that I hope you will look for Monday morning uh, on that very question on racer.com. Uh, Chris Ward, I can cover this one off quickly. Uh, saw them when uh, Chip Ganassi announced their primary drivers. It's assumed Scott Dixon is the enduro driver. Indeed, uh, noticeably absent was the fourth driver. Says Kevin Magnussen's dad has always wanted to race with his son and is a longtime GM driver. Is this just a coincidence, or am I completely wrong? Graham, you might have a little bit on uh, a certain Danish older guy in uh, his uh, racing thoughts, maybe?
1: A Danish older guy is doing a full season of WEC in LMP2 with High Class Racing uh, in, um, in their Orica 07 that will be part of what looks very much like a double figures LMP2 entry for. I believe LMP2 is oversubscribed in WEC for the coming year.
0: Ricky Zagata, you ask why core autosport decals show up on the 31 wheel and DPI. I don't know. Uh, so we're going to close here just with an uh, affirmament of Ryan Terps's question. This comes from Lance Snyder, who says who in the right minds believes Oliver Askew was a silver driver. Um, he's a quote amateur. He says, if he runs as an am, is this just further proof that the drive ratings, especially silver is complete chat. And then in all caps says, I said, chat Graham Goodwin. So, um, yeah, <laughs> you yeah,
1: you you, you, and your American past participles,
0: <laughs> past, I, I think, my I think I got those cut off once, so I think I'm doing okay. <laughs> um, we went a little bit longer than we intended on IMSA, but we got a lot of questions on IMSA, so there we go. That's so now, fine. uh, you tell us where we're going, but I know where we're going, so just tell us so it's official.
1: Uh, we're we gonna go to Wekaslam's Elms and
0: Akko. All right, so that means I hurl. Lance Snyder's obscenities at Y-O-U. And if we didn't get to your question in IMSA or any of the other categories, please send them back in and we will probably ignore you again. Uh, (laughs) Let's go to Right Turn Lover. It says Toyota tends to refresh their driver lineup, Graham. Uh, One driver per year, usually. Would you expect them to go into LMH with the same lineup? Or is someone going to be out and refreshed?
1: Uh, I expect the same lineup. It's as simple as that. I have some information kicking around for a couple of stories that are uh, doing the rounds at the moment about uh, driver lineups in LMH. Uh, I have to wait a few days for some of that, but I expect it to be an unchanged lineup.
0: Gonna go to go. All right, and that's it. Uh, we're going to go to fun next is the next category. Um, all right, Zach Anderson says... If IMSA ends up going GT3 Pro in 2022, Graham, can GTE Pro survive in the long term at Le Mans? Uh, Looking across all the various entries that might be possible from WEC, European Le Mans series, Asian Le Mans series, etc. So I know we've spoken about GTE AM being robust. What about the Pro side?
1: Well, one thing I'd say there, Zach, is there's only the WEC that has a GT Pro class. Uh, ELMS and Asia Le Mans series are to GTM regulations, although in Asia, and we'll have, I think, some news uh, in Asia. I'm not quite sure what we're going to do with that um, podcast we've we've collected from them, but uh, some very good news. They're GT3 um, cars there uh, for the Asian Le Mans series for the coming year. So the answer is it's all going to come down to, what the intentions are of three factories. Well, I think we we said on the show last week, uh, I expect GTAM GTE M to have quite a healthy future for a number of years. Um, we're really in a kind of transitional period, aren't we? With uh, IMSA looking towards GT three pro, with LMDH coming in twenty twenty three. This is all about what happens in twenty one and twenty two. If things go along the lines that we hope and in some cases expect this is far less of a problem by the time we get to 2023. The issue is the intervening two years. Um, I don't expect any change whatsoever in 2021 from the FIWEC. Um, we we'll have to wait and see what happens. Hashtag wait and see what happens uh, at the end of next season to make a determination as to whether there might need to be some kind of change there. For the moment, I'm expecting healthy numbers in GTE. AM in the WEC and in GTE in the European Le Mans series. Uh, don't think there's going to need to be a change for 2021 uh, in Europe or indeed on the global uh, stage.
0: Okay, we're going to go to Nicholas Kahoot. Hey, Nicholas. says, given that Penske is free in sports cars and Porsche will likely do LMDH, is Porsche Penske the avenue for Rogers' latest crack at Le Mans and do Ganassi being tied to GM... And a puny hybrid and LMDH mean Ford is out unless they do LMH. Uh, do you want me to take that? We can or?
1: Put, put, I'll, I'll have a first crack not, uh, to,
0: to talk around
1: it more than anything else. Look, there's a lot. Look, we've, we've, got, we've had news from Audi. Um, as to what they're going to do in the round. And as you might expect, that's led to a lot of posturing from teams that have got business links with Audi as to their position potentially in that marketplace. We'd already heard about the plans for Phoenix to get involved in LMP2. That's supposed to happen from the Asia Le Mans series, the European Le Mans series. WRT have made it clear they're taking a look. Frankly, I'd be staggered if others weren't in a similar position. Uh, to take a look at that, and, you know, you'd expect them to do that. It will be the same if, you know, people are expecting Porsche to declare that they're going down the LMDH route. It will be the same with teams with a business connection um, with that mark. And, of course, Penske do have that business connection through the Porsche North America uh, RS Spider program. Uh, anything you want to add to that one, MP?
0: I mean, the, the thing we have heard for a long time, and the thing that I wrote about in my little Audi Porsche opinion piece a couple days ago on Racer was we continue to hear that Roger Penske is going to spearhead this program in the U.S. I've heard nothing about them spearheading anything outside of the U.S. I wrote that I'm aware that Porsche has taken meetings with potential teams. I would say that any major company... Uh, that being those who play in motor racing as well, usually have some form of corporate governance that says you can't do uh, uh, a single bid contract with anyone. Uh, there has to at least be the uh, the presentation that you didn't just effectively award this to the person that you like the most. You did actually meet with multiple before deciding upon whomever. Um, would I be speaking out of turn, Graham, if I said... Those that Porsche might have spoken with about running a program on their behalf in America that weren't named Penske might have been on the box ticking side to say that, (laughs) hey, you know, again, we didn't just funnel this straight there. We did do our due diligence. I I would say that might end up bearing uh, a hint of truth. So continue to hear that there's going to be an announcement, a, a pending announcement. I can't tell you when about Porsche's plans. Uh, I mentioned that it's believed to be somewhat imminent in the piece that I wrote. And even last night, I had a call from someone uh, who I'm not going to name, but is very instrumental in global motorsports and has uh, their pulse on what lots of people are doing. And one of the first things that they mentioned in that conversation was hearing that Roger will be running a two-car Porsche LMDH program starting in 2023. So uh, yeah, one it's of those, a... if it gets announced, Graham, mm-hmm. you and I aren't going to be caught totally gobsmacked and surprised. I mean, no. if we were smart, we'd start writing those stories right now <laughs> so, with a little think, line that says, insert quote, to pull from whichever press release pops up.
1: I, I think we're, we're in a world at the moment where despite the kind of <sighs> – carnage economically there are some things that would be a surprise if they didn't happen and i think you know I, i'm going to put a pin in that one and say you know uh, we are now in, in a position where in the aftermath of audi making their announcement we are expecting others to make some noise in the coming days weeks and months uh, i hope so and i hope what that means is that we can start to to look forward with you know hope and enthusiasm rather than what the tone is at the moment around the the, it's it's about concern about small classes in just about every class of racing. (laughs) I'm hoping we can start to look forward to a picture of real positivity and that people get behind that vision. Is it perfect? It absolutely is not everybody's perfect answer to the question. Will we care? If we get to 2023 and the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona and the 24 Hours of Le Mans and um, the rest of the Emerson WeatherTech Sports Car Championship and the FI World Endurance Championship have got top class um, numbers, well into double figures, I don't think we'll give us stuff. I think we'll be too in- busy enjoying the racing. Uh, and let's hope that's the case. What's next, MP?
0: hmm boy john d i don't know john if we've uh read a question from you before so we're gonna read it right now um little bit a uh, little bit similar zone here of stuff we covered earlier in the show but hey john asks is there a chance a corvette will be gm's lmdh brand so they'll leave the ailing factory gt class Uh, and does any other manufacturer actually want a factory gte slash gtlm program these days that's the angle that that jumped out to me graham the yeah again we already covered what we think you know gm could replace the factory corvette c8rs at le mans with and whatnot provided that's the angle they go but are you hearing any real newcomers to this? Maybe winding down GTE Pro GT LM side.
1: I'll give you a teaser, um, and that is not one that's going to be a GT uh, LM or GTE uh, Pro manufacturer. But I am awaiting response from a significant manufacturer um, with the uh, the answer to my question. Am I correct that you have recently? written off the possibility of entering a major GT class in international sports car racing. Uh, So I'm afraid that would be not a good news story, but nonetheless, I think it's probably an accurate story. So right now, more likelihood that people are reading in their expectations than going forward. We've come through a period, remember, where we've seen Bentley step away from factory-backed GT3, uh, racing. Uh, I don't think we're going to see much more by the way of Nissan involved in that uh, either, frankly. Um, I don't think they'll be the last is the honest answer. I think we're going to see a bit more retraction from uh, the factory based um, efforts that we see in more than one class of gt racing so you know that is just a mark of where we are right now it goes back to that previous statement doesn't it which is we're looking for where the positivity comes i don't think that's going to be positivity in the vein of new faces coming forward for factory gt racing i'm afraid
0: mm, all right where else do we go because we got lots to go with some guy i believe also first time long time Daniel Summersdill. So uh, exactly. we're going to go with uh, him, her, or it. Do you think yeah. that the WEC, 1,000 miles of Sebring, Graham will happen in March? Hashtag me personally. With the increasing costs of sea freight and potential delays at the ports, along with COVID-19 still being rampant and a lack of time to get hypercars built and tested, seems very unlikely from here.
1: <sighs> um, it would be fair to say that there is... Um, how could I put that concern amongst, not the the organisers, the, from the organisers' point of view, what they're saying is it's on the calendar and until such time as circumstances make that uh, impossible, it stays on the calendar. There is some concern that that might be a date that could be at some risk. I think a lot will depend on the health picture in the United States in the intervening next few weeks and very few months. I hope we can come along. We missed it last year, missed it missed it greatly. Um it, it hits obviously the first round of the WEC. It's supposed to be there for the debut for the the Mon Hypercars, the hypercar class. Um, And after that, there would only be one race before those cars made their Le Mans debut, uh, if indeed Le Mans stays in June. So we are in a bit of a world of still some uncertainty. As I said earlier, I think the clouds of uncertainty are beginning to clear to some degree at least. But um, am I saying it's an imminent danger? I'm really not, Daniel. Am I saying that there are questions about it? Yes, there are. But to be honest with you, there's questions about absolutely every event as to whether it happens right now. At the moment, I'm uh, just finished actually booking some of the kind of um, logistics for me and my team for a number of races in the very early part of next year. And I'm doing that um, with far more of a an eye towards whether or not I can cancel those bookings than I ever have anything I've ever done before. And that's just the way the world. So the reality at the moment is it's on, it's on the calendar. There is no doubt being expressed directly by anybody at the WEC that it will go ahead. Uh, But do I think it's a risk? I think literally everything is, you know, is at a higher level of risk than we would have ever imagined before this damned year of 2020.
0: Where are we going next? Where are we going next? I'm just trying to scroll through here. You know, I think we're at the pick'em stage, Graham, because... Let's. uh, Yeah. Uh, Do you want Andres Lantos, who's, I think, fourth, fifth here, uh, about Audi and possibly Yoast? You know a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, do I think they might be one of those teams that might... Take a look. I'd be i I'd an idiot to think they wouldn't. Um, they've got such a kind of hardwired link to it. Yoast, uh, Andreas asks, is it the same Yoast as it always was? Well, it isn't. It's a straight answer. It's been since 2016. Remember, um, since uh, since what half a decade since uh, Yoast were part of the Audi Sports uh, program. Uh, so it's certainly fair to say that a significant number of people are no longer part of that, uh, that organization. Some still involved as suppliers and as consultants. Last I heard, Yoast are looking into a GT program in Germany, not DTM. I think it's at GT masters that they've been sniffing around, but that's not the first time I've heard that. Uh, but would I be surprised if, um, they put their head above the parapet? The answer is no, I wouldn't be surprised. And, um, you know, I think it would be a smart move if they found an ability to field such a program. Cause what I don't know is what their funding situation is uh, right now. So um, love, would love to see them back. Uh, you know, part of a stunning era in sports car racing. Uh, they would be a smart uh, bet to see as being a team that's, uh, that's interested in getting there. Have they got the capability of actually being there in a preparatory phase? Well, the reality is, if you want to go LMP2 racing, you'd have to believe that's where they would be. You're still looking at something like a 3 million euro per car uh, budget to go WEC racing, if that were the chosen uh, way of doing it. You can do the LMS somewhat cheaper than that, uh, but that doesn't necessarily get them where they need to be, which is to the long 24 hours.
0: There we go. Uh, let's see. Da, 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 da.
1: Uh, There's a quick one here from Tim Fulbrook, MP. What's the likelihood of a a FW front-wheel drive hypercar LMDH? I think the regulations count that out. Uh, Is it format ruled out in the regs? I think it is. So the days of seeing something like the GTR LM, I'm afraid, are gone for now. Uh, Just have a quick look. Uh, Jacob Bain says... I've said a few times that 30-plus field for WEC is a good number. Uh, look at series records. He agrees it's pretty high for WEC. Doesn't buy the cap of 32 to 34 entrants because of garage space on pit lanes. ELMS has had over 40 cars scheduled for the pre-COVID 2020 season. They share a number of circuits with WEC. Uh, the the issue for WEC was never garage space. It was for WF ELMS, although I think you know they could probably accept a couple more than uh, in the in the Jar era. the major reason why the cap was put for WEC was freighting because if you go over i think at the time it was thirty two that gets you into having to charter a third aircraft. I think it's the, the the what I recall um, but we no longer have quite as much um air freight as part of the package that changed a couple of three years ago, frankly. I think in the current format, if teams want to come, I think they'll let them come. The one factor that weighs against getting 35, 40 cars is the ACO will not want that number of cars nailed in for the Le Mans 24 hours. That starts to push uh, the issue about uh, the other Automatic entries from the other partner series and indeed the ACO's ability to make a determination as to who else they would like to be there, including, for instance, if manufacturers want to bring a third car. So that's the other reason why a cap on entries is a smart thing to do, because it means the, the blue ribbon event has got more flexibility for a selection committee to say, actually, we would like a couple more cars from so the Insta Tech Sports Car Championship, for instance, or not.
0: Hey, Graham. Yeah. How does a WC's race director get to events? Air Freitas, oh. possibly? Oh, Sorry, gosh. couldn't resist. Oh. <laughs> oh, the bar has hit the bottom. Oh. Uh, Well, you said the one that said Air Freight, so I thought I had Eduardo Freitas. So. Sorry. Uh, where else are we going? Uh, My man, Jacob Bain, has 97 submissions.
1: Let's have a quick look. Daniel, someone's somebody, somebody, dum, dum, dum. Uh, Chris Allen, was uh, Juan Pablo Montoya going to Dragon Speed a byproduct of the Imsa Musical Chairs, was from an appeal to race in WC since his son is racing F4 in Europe or from a combination of reasons? Um, I don't know. I've not had a chance to speak to JPM. Have you,
0: MP? I have not. I called him uh, a couple days ago. And but then I heard that it I was calling him at a later hour, and then I heard it was a European or uh, non-American dial tone coming back, so I hung up because I didn't want to risk waking him up. But I did text with him um, recently and got... Was, that I, that kind of text? was yeah, it that kind of text? Yeah, yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, not for young eyes to see. But no, I have yet to have a meaningful conversation with our delightful bundle of Colombian joy, but hope to soon.
1: Well, I don't, you know, he's he's uh, he's big buddies with his South American partnering crime, um, uh, Elton Julian, and that will have played a part, I'm absolutely certain in it. I'm sure there is appeal in um, WEC. It won't be lost on Juan Pablo that, of course, a new era is coming in prototype racing. And who knows? He's been quite, pretty cool on this one. But do you think he's got his eye on the Triple Crown?
0: <laughs> seriously
1: Or <laughs> couldn't give a stuff
0: if if for those who don't know on Pablo Montoya uh, since the Triple Crown isn't a real thing meaning there's <laughs> no one handing you some giant trophy for winning it and there's no money attached to it it means absolutely nothing to him and if oh, yeah. you want to if you want to piss him off ask him about Triple Crown because he's been asked it 14 million times and when I'm just in the mood to mess with him I'll bring it up and then hear him kind of sort of half-heartedly try to answer it and then ask like are you freaking serious no are you freaking push back but you know again yeah you know, the minute you expose your weakness of course we're going to go after it so um no uh, look would he love to win le mans absolutely is there something that he, that I know he has in the back of his head, like, and then I'll have Monaco and Indy, and then I'll be a triple crown winner? No. Like, he'll be the guy who's won those three races, and that's amazing. But it's not some uh, holy grail pursuit of his by any means. Okay. Um,
1: uh- I'm going to pick two more quickly before we move on. First one is from Jose Tapia, who says, whose idea was it to make a subclass of LMP1 with non-hybrid cars that couldn't compete with the hybrids and had to settle for best of the rest? Why didn't the LMP1 privateers have their own podium? Uh, Only jumped into sports car racing recently. Feel as though that helped kill the class. It sort of did. Um, They sort of fumbled it. Uh, We did have a single season where there was an LMP1L, LMP1 Lite uh, class, Um, But the reality was that at various times, you're absolutely right, Jose, that the privateers were given assurances that were then not delivered upon. In part, that was because there was strength in numbers in the factory cars 2014 through 2016. Um, There was then a bit of a, frankly, a bit of um, frozen uh, decision making um, when we had the rapid succession withdrawals of first Audi, then Porsche. And then we got into the success handicap era. Uh, By which time, unfortunately, a number of um, manufacturers and a number of teams and prospective teams had departed the scene. So it's not, frankly, a terribly attractive part of the history of the WEC through that period of time. At least they had the uh, opportunity to lean back on what's been a pretty stellar LMP2 class through that period of time. But no, I don't think that has been the most glorious part of the history of the FI World Endurance Championship. Uh, could they have matched those cars? They could have done a better job. We could certainly have got to the stage where we didn't just get to the stage where they're trying for parity, but actually giving advantage to the manufacturer of cars. That pretty clearly was political commercial. But the reality of the... Um, the powers if you like of those uh those hybrid cars was frankly they were just on a different planet it's as simple as that i mean it it, yeah oddly enough um someone sent me a link to a compilation of um moments in in fiwc lmp1 racing which uh for the most part featured uh commentary from myself and john hindoff through 2015-2016 and what a glorious Period that was where, you know, frankly, we weren't that worried about the um, the privateer cars because we're too busy going. My God, have you seen what's going on for first, second, third, fourth, fifth and sixth places? Uh, But with the benefit of hindsight, and isn't that a wonderful thing, that was pretty short sighted from everybody concerned. Final one here. And we are going to have a quick look at Jake Ward says, can you explain how each LMP2 constructor is prepared to work with multiple OEMs on separate LMD Husky projects. Before I answer that, I came across a completely random conversation on a message board that did not involve just, just talking about um, uh, sports car racing. And completely randomly, somebody did commit to. Is that true that uh, the ACO have come up with a new class, LMD Husky?
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: our, uh, show, our, uh, show, our work here is done. The the answer, by the way, to this one, Jake, is very simple. Um, these are going to be uh, a proprietary LMP2 chassis. Uh, and remember, the other part of this is that the uh, the part of the powertrain that is the hybrid side of things is a spec part of the package. So the only thing um, for the chassis side of things, other than the bodywork, and that's within certain parameters as well, is the engine. So the engine, of course, you can have a manufacturer specific engine. And of course there might well be some differences and some ways and means in which you adapt that chassis for an engine that might be turbocharged or not turbocharged. But the reality is I don't expect there to be fundamental differences um, other than, uh, a pretty universal fit, uh, and frankly, not that different to, let's say, for instance, what you might have seen in the past in a Lola chassis with a Turbo Master engine, a normally aspirated uh, Toyota V eight engine in the same chassis. That's the kind of basis we're looking at. So the answer here is, I don't believe we're going to get to the stage where any of those manufacturers um, compromise too much uh their basic lmp2 slash lmd8 chassis uh for one manufacturer i simply don't see that happening
0: are we going somewhere else my friend
1: we are going i think to uh her general uh i think reasonably briefly aren't we this evening um john schultz Says, last week's discussion of BMW's recent decisions regarding its factory racing efforts led him to wonder whether BMW Motorsport as a whole has any perspective in the foreseeable future. Why would they cut so many tires who wants to get involved in LMDH for the next two, three years? I'm not sure they do want to get involved in LMDH. I think BMW are one of the manufacturers we're more likely to see um, a little later on, maybe with hydrogen. Uh, it's been certainly one of those technologies that BMW has had some, um, you know, some dips into the kind of the uh, the, the road car side sort of things. Their their major project moving forward is the new customer massive grill M4 GT3. So customer racing will be will form the 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 main platforms uh, for BMW. I think in the intervening two or three years. The key to it is going to be how achievable that hydrogen fuel cell technology is going to be, uh, at what cost, and to be blunt, whether BMW and anybody else is going to be in a fit state commercially to take advantage of the opportunities that racing might have with an emerging technology, unless, you know, different MP.
0: No, I don't, and I would. we know for a fact that BMW is part of some – of the LMDH steering, I don't know, steering committee meetings, whatever you want to call the meetings where lots of manufacturers showed up to talk about it, either in person or virtually. Um, But I would say that, to my knowledge, the last time that that happened and BMW was seriously, or potentially considering it, that was before a lot of decisions were made to do a lot of the uh, cutbacks and whatnot that we have seen and expect to have confirmed uh, here somewhat soon so along with your opening line about this graham of course we'd love to learn about bmw coming into lmdh
2: mm-hmm.
0: i just think the last time that they were really eyeing it was before some key strategic changes took place so i think that's right i yeah i would be very surprised if there is not an, an ongoing reduction here for a little bit uh but yeah there's also as you mentioned could it be hydrogen could it be some sort of bigger initiative that involves a lot of of new motorsports related technology that's where i think we're going to uh hopefully hear some pretty cool things before long
1: um i'm gonna take a couple of questions here from tim Fulbrook. Uh, Tim says, with the top flight of endurance racing on the edge of a new era and with the turned heads of the wider racing world, Magnussen going to uh, Ganassi, Grosjean's Persia interest, uh, JJ's DPI drive, could we see sports car racing become the place to be in the 2020s? Um, I think there's every reason to expect that if the manufacturers in particular up their game in terms of the way they activate those programs and i think if we see in certain instances some of the championships up their game in terms of the quality of the efforts uh, that they put behind those uh, those packages then there's every chance it could certainly get more of the pie will it challenge the steamroller for publicity that is um the formula one and nascar uh, paddocks, I think that 's highly unlikely simply because it 's the the major money that 's behind that, but you know what? <sighs> we can get a bigger piece of the pie, and I think there 's every prospect of that if you get some of those bigger personalities uh, the big brands, the big battles. Good TV packages, well-produced highlights packages, you know, sensible ways of growing the audience, uh, more interaction, looking at what you can do with lots of the new opportunities that are around there. That's the likes of Formula One has woken up late to Formula E's done a very good job with, um, you know, in terms of using new technology to get to new and wider audiences using the virtual world, sim racing. Um, uh, platforms, uh, not as a blunt weapon, not as a kind of uh, easy uh, way into this marketplace, but but start doing things in a way that just make a lot more sense and aren't seen as being a piecemeal meal part of the of the uh, of the package. Get these people on board. Get the people who want to become engaged in something properly engaged with it. I was talking to someone today, MP, about the quality of discussion that you get on an average YouTube feed, uh, I was watching the carl army race. And with a few notable exceptions, you've got people clearly watching six, seven, eight, nine hours of racing that know nothing about that race. Mm. Now, if you've got people prepared to put that investment in, uh, of their time to watch this, for God's sake, find a way to engage these people better. um, and clearly, massive uh, proportion of people involved heavily in gaming. Um, you know, the, the most tedious, predictable question, uh, a, a point made is, oh, the F1's starting them off now. You know, see what you can do to get them back. You know, it, 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 for me, there's a frustration that we've got people's attention with the fact that the, the cars are cool, the racing is cool, but we seem kind of frozen in terms of our ability to retain that audience. And I think a lot of that is going to come down to how is this going to be packaged moving forward. Um, one final one from Tim Fulbrook. Uh, will the Corvette C8 R, it says, be the last car built to GTA specification? Were there any manufacturers that got oh so close to joining the the, uh, the category? I think the answer to the first one, MP, is probably yes. Um, there have been t- uh, manufacturers that got oh so close to joining the category, we've said it, time and time again on the show uh, look up mclaren set at senna gtr and ask yourself two questions one why is that so-called um hypercar track day car got position lights on the on the side and why is it running on Michelin tires um and the second one i'd say lamborghini have come close more than once to taking a good hard look um at that's class, without a shadow of a doubt. They've but been the class- entering
0: GTE for, I think, <laughs> four years now. So it's just some of these, you know, it's just a long process, apparently. So <laughs> it might take t- uh, so long, unfortunately, but that by the time their cars arrive, the class will no longer exist. So we'll have uh, to see.
1: Know. Yeah, and rumor has it BMW we're going to enter at some point, but uh, they never got round to that.
0: Hey... Uh, let's see Kevin Payne without he pulling out a formula E do you have any insight into what will be the next challenge for Alan McNish he also says happy 50th MP uh I, would... I can tell
1: you. I know it. No, tell you right away. He's, um, he's looking into a strategy to see whether or not he can get the tonics biscuits that we keep gaffer taping to the ceiling in the WEC TV booth so he can't eat them early. That's his next challenge. The it's ceiling. I
0: just figure if you taped them to the back of a Wasteful. chair – he might struggle to reach up and get him. So, I mean, that seems like a lot of effort right there. Um, Can
1: I I just – I'll say this out loud. Uh, I don't see any circumstances in which Al is not involved in what comes next for Audi. I, I cannot conceive of circumstances that would see him not in a senior role.
0: There we go. Um, uh, let's see, where else shall we wander? Oh, here's a uh, fun one because it yeah. actually uh came up in my hemisphere. Our pal Daniel Summerskill, uh, oh. says what happened to the Michelin green X challenge that was around, I think at Le Mans in the intercontinental Le Mans cup around 2010, 2011, uh, happy belated birthday. He mentions, um, I can wh- tell you tell me.
1: Honestly, it was, uh, you know, one of those things, massive budget behind it, massive levels of uh, technical know-how went into it, and no one cared! Is that about right?
0: Yeah, so, Daniel, coincidentally, while looking for some photos from 2008 Alms, also known as the former American Le Mans series, I wandered down a folder-based rabbit hole and came across... <laughs> a Michel Michelin was it? No, I, I think I don't remember. It was just the green X challenge, uh, whatever it was, um, race report from petite Lamont, 2008. So, and because it was a season finale, I believe, I think, um, and did an actual wrote a separate race report on how the Michelin green X championship ended up. And it was like 1,400 words. And wow. I don't know what kind of crack they sell in Georgia, but I had it all apparently because you want to talk <laughs> about the thing that no one gives a flying fart about. It was the Green X Challenge. And it was I,
1: indeed the Michelin Green
0: X Challenge. Yes. Uh, Mar- Margot T. O'Gay, who is from the U.S. Department of Transportation, and this person and that person that uh, – the LMS roped in to get behind this and support it. Like there was all kinds of governmental support for this. Those three or four key people from the American government might've been the only people who actively gave a fart because no one else did. And it had the, it had the thing Graham that didn't make sense to most people to win the green X challenge at each race you had to have the lowest score. <laughs> I know that in golf, you're going for <laughs> negatives and, so, and whatnot, yeah. and how many under are, and again, I know that there's some did you have, sports. Did you have to
1: wear some trousers as well in the Greenwich Challenge? The,
0: oh, the my gosh. This is just one of those things where you go, who? Who is actively looking to see the, no- oh, Corvette Racing got a 29.38 score. Well, what is it? How do you get to that number? What is that number comprised of? What's the math? What factors? Yeah, things and stuff, you know, just, uh, what, uh, things nobody knew. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, but nonetheless, 2008, by the way, uh, we at speed were being paid to write this crap. So that's why it got written. Um, no one cared about it. It moved nothing. It did nothing. It has had no longstanding or sustainable impact on anything, and it was funny to me that when the Alums and Grand Am, uh, quote, merged and became New Era IMSA, Decra took over the sponsoring of this thing. And it was the Dekra Green Challenge. And Ooh. I know that you were going to find this hard to believe. Fewer people gave a <laughs> <fart>. it, <laughs> Right? Right? It's that thing where, like, you haven't seen, like... You haven't seen the dog for a couple of years, and all of a sudden it kind of comes running in through the garage and looks around and takes a couple bites of food and takes off again. You're like, I thought you were dead. Where the hell have you been? You were here the whole time? Oh, well, huh? And it was soon gone because Decra decided to no longer sponsor things, but certainly did not sponsor the thing that. Yeah. It would have just been easier for them to make it up. Hey, we're sponsoring the <laughs> Green X Decra Formula One Challenge, um, and we won. Uh, well, what did we win? We don't know, but we're going to make up press releases, and we're going to have a whole fake contest for the whole year and actually just invest no money in anyone Ooh. other than ourselves and make a, it that's up. That's a thought. That yes. Maybe
1: we could do a fake a fake award for next year for a major championship that we make up, and we could issue a and see how many people bother to ask.
0: This, I mean, they would have. It would have been more relevant if they had sponsored uh, an iRacing series. Like, I mean, that—that's about the only place you go. Hey, wow! They've all got scores of zero. Look at look at what we've done to change motorsports. This is a zero. We look at this zero emissions. This is the thing we're behind. That's why we have the Decra iRacing Green Racing Challenge. Yeah, makes total sense. Anyways, I just yeah. Oh man, fun stuff. Uh, all right. What else? Uh, all right. Here, here's maybe a final one for you. I don't know. Go for it. Um, James Counter says, okay. what do you know about Formula Woman, and what do you think it might achieve? Where do you think where do you think it might achieve?" That's an interesting phrase. We talking you can, about-
1: we talked about W Series or Formula Woman. Formula Woman's a long time ago. Yes, isn't
0: yes. It? So I, uh, that was yeah. You, we discussed this briefly in the past. Wasn't but
1: Formula Woman Mazda RX-8?
0: Something like that. Yeah. Uh, was, UK there was, there was, there was only.
1: Original, yeah. Now I think you're probably talking W Series. I think James.
0: Which would be a strange um, thing to ask about on our weekend sports car show, but uh,
1: it would um so the answer is what do i think it might achieve profile okay uh, am i an ex- a, a fan or an exponent of what they're doing there with the all kind of female single um uh, seater grid i'm not particularly but i admire the fact that someone's taking some initiative and clearly putting some money behind it another some cynicism about the long-term funding of this but look if that allows us not to have to ask questions uh, that we were asked actually earlier in the week in sports cars about people who should have done enough to have attracted attention to get, um, you know, a confirmed drive like Catleg, then it would have achieved it, wouldn't it? If we can get to the stage where the likes of Jamie Chadwick, um, who won the first series, uh, manages to get a meaningful drive in an international series because she's got the talent um, to take on her peers and win and win well then that will be a good thing
0: she it's was announced good- in extreme e and that is international and it's off road absolutely, uh, absolutely but right. it's An not extreme maybe e. something you know at, so far we have seen to therefore be familiar with but that is in it, theory going to be a globetrotting thing that she does
1: and remember extreme e is another series where you have to have two drivers and one will be male and the other one will be female and we've got uh, a glittering array of stars coming on the male side and if that allows some of the less well-known and at times maybe the uh, the less experienced female drivers of off-road uh, sport to improve their game and get more profile again I think that's a good thing I'll give you one comparison and that is European Le Mans series this year we had two all-female crews Iron Links, with a, t- a title challenging three um, lady uh, driver lineup in a gte ferrari and the slightly less successful but encouraging progress from the number 50 richard meal lmp2 uh, effort the iron links car certainly will be graduating to the wec for the coming season uh, i believe the plan is that there will be a new group of um women racers in the elms in another iron links car and they'll be looking to do what they can to push that forward frankly i think as long as it's being done with the right motivation in place that means that more opportunity comes forward for everybody concerned there is no downside Uh, am i a fan of positive discrimination and positive placement like that it's not particularly at the top of my wish list but neither am i idiot enough to think that we haven't got movements around the world at the moment for all manner of uh, areas of diversity that have got uh, lofty aims uh, that are based on the fact that we perhaps have ignored some of those needs for rather too long in modern history. So more than prepared to give them a little bit of slack and see whether or not they can produce against what they say they're trying to produce. In the case of W Series, they get a pass from me to crack on and show that they've got the right motivations here. Um, and I hope to see some of those young women actually stepping forward and stepping up into better opportunities in the future. That's that's where I am on it.
0: Let's see if I can find anything else that might keep us here a little longer. Uh, yeah, we're going to go to our pal Andrew Backa. says, I dispute Graham's issue with calling the LMP2 class requiring, requiring bronze drivers pro-am. Given the number of professional silver drivers – says the FIA no longer tries to pretend silvers are amateurs. I'd argue the existing LMP2 class uh, was already LMP2 Pro because driver ratings suck and ruin <laughs> everything.
1: Andrew, I love you dearly. I really do. I'd, I'd agree with everything you said if and only if they called it LMP2 Pro, but they don't. They call it LMP2. It is a Pro-Am series. Uh, because silver is not supposed to be a a professional uh, ranking. So I do find it odd that they don't call it LMP2 Am. The odd thing is we've long talked about uh, the potential to have LMP2 Pro. Uh, And that's principally on the basis of the capabilities of those cars. They are extraordinary. Uh, The current brand of LMP2 cars are extraordinarily able machines. Um, You know, evidenced by the kind of lap times they pump out at Le Mans time and time again. But uh, I take your point. Um, But on this one, I've got the microphone. So I'm right and you're wrong.
0: <laughs> there we go uh we're gonna go to kevin devries uh wants to know about Mo motor sport motorsport track also known as canadian tire motorsports park says seems tons of drivers love the place in due part to its sheer speed and potential for pucker moments i understand it's played host to a plethora hey good word of series over the years any specific series or races that I might be able to find on the YouTubes to check it out? It says I live an hour away and I'm shamefully ignorant about the place. Well, oh. there were many great America Le Mans series races there back in the eighties. You had uh, some occasional visits by Group C, which was pretty oh. darn awesome. Uh, the Speed World Challenge Series, Kev, both in GT and touring car form offered a lot that might be fun and if you were to go back even more distanced er you would find some can and I I yes and USRRC races there that you I think would absolutely love so I'd do that uh we're going to go to our pal again Jacob Bame third attempt he says in earlier shows you've said that a major reason behind the ESO's move from distance-certain to time-certain races was primarily dictated by TV deals. But in the era Mm of streaming, why are races still time-certain? 1,000 miles of Sebring is proof of concept. Prolonged yellows affecting race time are not an issue if you establish a distance and a maximum time as a backup. So why not turn, for example, six hours of Spa back into the 1,000 Ks of Spa with six hours as a backup? So as a current LMP2 can cover... Uh, around 1,100 kilometers in six hours, depending on the track, making the idea viable. History gets its due, and TV deals are still happy.
1: Um, I'll I'll come cracking in with the fact that I think streaming is by far the more... um, I could put this preferred option, although this is a good moment, by the way, to say what great news it was for IMSA with the TV figures last week, MP, which you'll know rather more about. And uh, I do wonder what that that potentially means for figures for other kind of coverage of the the championship. But uh, good news for the kind of, well, that's NBC doing a great job, isn't it? Uh, Uh, It's got to be said.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're saying nothing negative about NBC. We just have to be very, very honest. The numbers especially when they took over from Fox and Fox sports at the end of 2018 were just non-existent. So IMSA's TV ratings were so bad, they would kind of not talk about them ever, ever, ever. And Mm -hmm. so in 2019, NBC's first year, there were improvements for sure, because how could you not? And, uh, so the key proof of that is year to year. From 2019 to 2020, I believe it was 21% uptick. It's either 21 or 23%. I forget which, but I apologize. Regardless, it's pretty close. We'll call it 22% year-to-year upgrade. Great. The most telling number, to give you an idea, Graham, of how low the ratings were that they had to start off with, from 2018, Fox Sports last year hosting IMSA, uh, to 2020, there's been an 89% increase. Wow. So while that is super impressive it's still an average of and fiftieth thousand viewers per uh per event and the big rating scene on uh, I'm sorry on NBC network to open the year for a little bit at Daytona where it was roundabout averaging a million viewers there you know those things help skew things a little bit so i'm not taking anything Indeed. away just saying that the percentage increase is huge we just need to read about a 22 percent increase next year and the next year and the next year and then finally we'll be at a place where we can say aha there's really a good good number of people tuning in for every event
1: yeah as for the uh, the reason why we have the time certain events now it's principally certainly for the WEC, because martin haven and alan McNish need to be in bed before the street lights are out
0: well i mean if they could get the constable
1: not as a couple not as i should say that
0: immediately uh, yeah uh, Those
1: rumors are scandalous and incorrect
0: true uh clement rosin asks what happened to bullet racing's program with bentley COVID. I, okay COVID. uh jacob bame uh says one of, on the topic of gifts jacob send this in oh. for next week maybe i don't know this might take a while to get to um talking about holiday gifts so send that one back in and might i suggest uh we head to fun before we have to turn I off the so. internet machine I will,
1: I will say really quickly to nick whose surname i'm gonna murder again Dovnyak, um has asked a question about super gt and balanced performance um nick please drop me a personal message via twitter or via facebook And I will get R.J. O'Connell to provide us an answer for you on that one. But it's a very good question, but I don't know the answer.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, where are we going to close the show?
1: We're going to go to fun. Fun, 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 fun.
0: We don't have a ton of fun, fun, fun. But uh, where shall we start um, where shall we start? There's a lot of them for me. I don't know why.
1: Yeah, there are. Well, it's because, it's because you had a big birthday. Uh, I mean, 60-something so. to celebrate. It really is. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Zach23, with double A, Zach23. 250th uh, questions. What is MP's earliest sports car memory, and what mistakes did you make on your first ever day on the job in motorsport?
0: Oh, well, let's get... First, first
1: sports car memory.
0: Uh, first sports car memory would be my first proper racing memory as well. Uh, and that would be spectating at... I struggle to know whether it was or seventy five or 1975 or 1976, Laguna Seca IMSA GT. And recall watching factory bmw and that's where i'm a little fuzzy on what year 75 76 um being chased by i think decon monza's and uh again it's a little bit fuzzy but i do recall standing uh with my dad and it would be the area if you've been to laguna seca as you're driving down the hill and making the right heading towards the paddock on the right where you would start driving up if you wanted to head towards the corkscrew. That is where modern era, where teams park up that hill. Uh, I'm guessing back then that was more of a spectator parking area because I remember being there with my dad, looking back at what would be the cars coming down the hill um, through turn nine into turn 10, making that right towards Turn 11, which is the final corner towards the front straight, in um, just watching this BMW, BMWs, red, white, and blue BMWs streaking past. So, yeah, uh, IMSA's been a part of my life for a long time, boys and girls. Um, as for the first day mistake, I don't know. I'm sure I made many. I can tell you that the number one first year mistake. And this almost ended in fatality, or could have ended in fatality, and it's, I guess, funny now. Wasn't funny then! Um, Was at the first big pro race that I was taken to as a young crew member in whatever year, 86, 87, something like that. Was the uh, Phoenix 200 IndyCar weekend, and I was part of the crew on a SCCA Pro Super V team, which would have been you know, kind of GP three level, if we're talking European open wheel and maybe mid-level, the road to Indy prior to Indie lights level. Anyways, um, being granted some new mechanical freedoms to do more than just wipe the car down and low pick up heavy things and put them away in the transporter, uh, or the trailer, I should say. Uh, I was allowed to help put the wheels on the car while it was up in the air and to torque them to go out for whatever practice session or qualifying. And for those of you that are familiar with how most professional racing wheels interact with the brakes uh, and whatnot, there is the brake disc hat. That is the part with usually the holes in them, or they have studs that come out and on the backside of the wheel that mounts to it. Either the wheel has studs that go into the holes or the wheels have the holes bored into them to receive the studs that stick out. But that's how things connect and that's why uh, wheels do not spin on the brake discs because they're engaged through this mechanism. Well, what happens, Graham, if you're 16 years old and uh, dumb and think that you have gotten the wheel seated onto the pegs but didn't? And torque the wheel down. And, <gasps> yeah. So, uh, yes. So, luckily, the driver, I mean, this is like a crew of, like, including the driver, like four people. So, you know, we're just under a little easy up tent. Um, he happened to notice that something just looked wrong and realized that I had not seated the wheel onto the brake. And... That was on the right front corner, which on a high-speed oval like Phoenix would be a recipe for going into the wall and possibly uh, leaving in an ambulance with a sheet thrown over your entire body. So uh, he did two things, which I'm thankful for. He recognized it and then made a very big deal out of it. And I can't tell you, Graham, um, Mm -hmm. or Zach23, how much of it was pure outrage at the error or how much of it was, I need to make sure this kid never forgets this moment. So I am going to make a giant deal out of it in a way that will always stick with him. But that's what he did. And I'm thankful for it because Mm -hmm. I kind of didn't totally know what I was doing and I wasn't paying attention and he made sure that I darn near, he down my leg because I was both afraid of him and his reaction and his disappointment and disappointed in myself doing something that could have seriously hurt him. So I'd say that's a pretty good one. Um, and I hopefully answered the question. Yeah, I think you. Did. I think you did.
1: Um, we're going to carry on with some fiftieth fiftieth uh, birthday oh, ones
0: Jesus. because
1: here we go. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. What is your favourite memory working in sports car racing? With it being in the cars and you worked on taking pictures, the track, sitting, uh, interviewing people. Um, uh, it's not going to be that. It's uh, what's so a couple of memories over the long, long half century you've been you floating bee. around the sun.
0: Um... <laughs> Uh, Two things come to mind, the little crappy team of my own uh, where we finished third overall at uh, the 25 Hours of Thunder Hill, and I forget exactly where we finished uh, a year or two later, but we had crazy hardships and barrel rolled the car because one driver was being a total idiot Um, and then had to repair that and so on, and I forget where we finished. But uh, it's some of those David Goliath things really. Uh, jumped out as things that I loved. You know, one of my favorite memories, and it's one of the the first on the professional side, was going over the wall for the very first time during an IMSA race. Uh, This would have been 1990 with the terrible, I was about to say terrific, but I was trying to blend horrific and terrible. I don't know if that, (laughs) is that terrific? Sure. Um, The Racecraft International team, uh, with our SE89 Spice GT po- powered GTP powered by, a, I believe it was a 5-liter Pontiac V8, uh, going over, my very first time going over the wall in an IMSA race, IMSA GTP race as a crew member, and I was still, I was like 19? So, yeah, still young enough where they weren't going to entrust me with a whole lot that was important that I could mess up so all I did was go over the wall with a can of glass aerosol glass cleaner and a rag to clean the windshield during the pit stop while there's a driver change going on and tire change and whatnot and I don't remember what I did if I did the kind of climb up the nose and kneel on the front of the car you know doing it you know kind of Uh, semi-humping the front of the car uh, to do that uh, because obviously changing tires and driver change, a little bit busy to get in there and do it properly. So for some reason, I think I might have done that, which was not uncommon to see back then. But I just remembered what a thrill that was because having, as I just mentioned with uh, Zach's question, IMSA's the first racing series I remember seeing. Loved it to death. Holy crap! Here I am now working in it when I'm 19, going over the wall for my first time for a pit stop, and it was just watching. I don't know, man. Uh, well, granted, we were slow, so we got. A, I got a chance to spectate a little bit while on pit lane, but watching. You know, the Dyson Porsche and TWR Jags and Nissan GTP cars explode out from behind us, you know, leaving the pit sooner if it was under yellow and everyone pitted at the same time. It was just really cool and surreal because it wasn't too many years before that when I was just a kid working at whatever crappy little prep shop or whatever, uh, I'd drive up just to watch them and drag my camera with me and just be in love with it and wanting to be in it and be a part. And so even, you know, while I was doing work as a mechanic when we, uh, between races, or that's a stupid way to put it, was performing as a mechanic, just was not doing tire changes during the pit stops, it was still cool to go over the wall and, like, know that I could get run over by really famous cars and drivers. So that uh, that was just really cool, man. It felt like an achievement.
1: Fantastic stuff. We'll pick a couple more to finish off this show because time is pushing on. I've got one here from Ivan Pandeff for fun. The BMW M4 GT3 got him thinking. we don't even want to think what that thought might have been. What uh, are your then. picks? <laughs> for the race cars throughout history with the highest, ugliest-to-success ratio, and what about the lowest success-to-beauty ratio? Uh, me, personally, on the latter, he says the Jaguar XJ220 LM, the largo RGT, or the Epsilon EE1. So let's, let's start with one for the highest, ugliest-to-success an ugly race car that's been successful.
0: I'd say the Riley DP. Oh right? yeah. And I, the Riley, I think was the best looking of all the Daytona prototypes, Fab but the formula EV. itself Ooh. just made ugly cars. Right. I mean it, yep. uh, but yeah, I mean, they won kind of everything. So maybe that had the highest, uh, despite the ugliness, boy, you want everything type deal. Uh, so that comes to mind over here, Graham, what about on your side?
1: Just trying to think. I don't think the Panos Esperanti GTLM was a particularly good-looking car, uh, but that won Le Mans in uh, 2006. I think the first car to win Le Mans in that class that was not a Porsche. So that one, for me, most certainly um, is right up there. As for the really pretty cars that did absolutely nothing, uh, you've got three of them there. I'm going to go with – it it rather predates the – pretty appalling and actually not that good looking in the way that it came to the track rocket sports jaguar to go for an earlier iteration of this of that car the jaguar xkr that was done for british gt by a guy called alan lloyd um a simply spectacularly beautiful uh, gt race car that was bloody awful um, absolutely terrible! Spat fire, which means we've got some fantastic pictures of it. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, yeah, it was it,
0: coming out of the cockpit, so that was the only slide problem there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it basically had um, one primary talent, which was it would shit itself all over the uh, the track at an alarming and not shat by the way um, itself, uh, an alarming kind of rate of knots. Real shame because it was a stunning piece of kit, but uh, but absolutely hopeless I'm afraid how about a pretty car that never did anything MP
0: <sighs> I have no idea let's move on um, <laughs> I'm sorry I just look I'm not even going to try and fake the funk right here why don't we take one more brother and as always if we didn't get to your question please send it in again if you really want us to read it and if you don't then don't or if you just want to Me? mess with us do.
1: we are going to go with Lance Snyder um, going for the most despised IMSA entry for next season. He's going to put together the combination of Paul Gentilosi and Kevin Buckler, going to field a team for Christophe Bouchu and Gustavo Yakaman. He said Yakaman,
0: by the way, so Yackemen even better.
1: Um, who would be the additional drivers in the enduro races? I'm
0: going to throw Montoya in there, Right. Um, he's a
1: divisive character, isn't he?
0: Well, look, he, he's if he's got nothing to play for, you really don't want to be in his proximity because oh. you might not be in the race much longer. Uh, so we're going to throw JPM in there, and uh, you get the last, Graham. Oh,
1: Bamba! what a loathsome individual oh. he is. Just terrible, terrible. Mean, he, he comes across as being such a nice bloke. People just don't know just how appalling a person he is. His Absolutely. real name, by the
0: way, Bam Erlber. A lot of people don't know that. Change that up. Yep. El oh, Bamber. Oh, damn him. I hope he uh, retires. I'm putting hexes on him as we speak. If you're
1: listening, we love you dearly.
0: We don't. Um, we hate you. Oh, boy. I've, I've got a little, little doll here I'm stabbing right now. Oh, the guy, I tell you. Uh, This is terrible. Uh, Kidding aside, are we done? I mean, we could do this for another two hours and probably still not get to all the questions, but I I, kind of feel like we're done. And if we are, well, you know what to do.
1: I do. We'll take it home. Uh, It's the end of this week's edition of the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. We're going to say thank you to all of you again for listening, particularly those of you that took the time uh, that's you, Daniel, Summerskill, and uh, a very small number of other people uh, to send in the questions again this week. Massive number again, and apologies to those we didn't get to. Send them in again, and we'll try to get to them. Thanks to Ryan Kish for again for putting them together for us. But, of course, we thank Cooper Tyres. We thank... Uh, torontomotorsports.com we spank, thank Bell Helmets USA Bell,
0: spank and we, Bell, Bell Helmets USA
1: let's not do that, It'd be a bad thing um, but uh, we thank the Justice Brothers of course, he's been Marshall Pruitt, I've been Graham Goodwin, this has been the Week in Sports Cars we will speak to you again next week